Welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama on BBS Radio Station 1. We're so glad you're joining us here tonight. We'd like to take a few moments to get into our heart space and set that tone for the evening. So let's take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth or out through your nose, <laughs> whatever protocol you like to use a few times. Go into that heart space. And we hear that calling drum, calling us all together. So as you go into your heart space, gather with your guides, your guardians, your spirit teams, your healing teams. So all those you like to journey with, with that kimi drum, your ancestors, your totems. And there's a council fire, and it's in the center. Let's gather around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. In that perfect circle, that perfect fire, let us call in this seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition. We 
We walk around from the east have light. We wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north, house of night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. Greet from the West, the house of transformation. May wisdom bring us be the transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We greet from the South. House of the Eternal Sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary being. We welcome from above the House of Paradise where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. You're welcome from below, house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. Welcome from the center, source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. Ayam Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Yimaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Yimaho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. Ho, Matakoyasu, all my relations. In Mach Esh, Alakin, I am another you, you are another me. So let's just stay wherever that drum be kicking you, that tuning As we take a look at the Mayan record of days for today and for the week ahead. So today, and we are in the wave of ox that, the dog, the white dog, that, that wave of unconditional love. And uh, today, king number... 176, which is 27, it's a seven key, so that's three sevens <laughs> in the seven year. So, well, it's a new year, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the, the year of the magician, 
resonant musician. So, no, it's not. Um, the, ye- the yellow resonant warrior is the overtone magician, to be exact. We had a new year this week in the Mayan world, and so we started in a new year, and, <clears throat> and it's the year of the five each, the over. Each is white. <laughs> the white overtone magician. So it's a magical year ahead of us. And we celebrate that. So Happy New Year, everyone. And let's look at the mantra for today. I channel in order to question inspiring fearlessness. I feel the output of intelligence with the resonant tone of attunement. I am guided by the power of elegance, and I am the galactic activation portal. Enter me. So today's a portal day, and uh, <laughs> it's it's the warrior representing the um, question, fearlessness, and intelligence today. And it's the seventh day of the wave spell, the white dog, and its resonant tone <clears throat> inspire. Attunement and channel are its three words, and uh, the key words. So this day is guided by the yellow star, and the occult power today is the red serpent, and the ally today is the blue knight, and the challenge today is the white world bridger. That's the key. <laughs> okay, so... That's what's going on with today. Let's look at that warrior energy a little bit more. It's a warrior aspect. So we're trusting in our journey. We're bringing awareness of right action as we embrace these gifts of communication with the divine, that access to cosmic consciousness. We let go of any limitation, restriction, or hesitation as we embrace these energies on this day. And... And moving on to Saturday, Vinyana, tomorrow, Kaban, the <clears throat> the red galactic earth. And so Kaban, the earth, is a healing aspect. So we work with, as our work is being that keeper of the earth and that our awareness of earth energy. So listen to her. And we embrace these gifts of that access to planetary harmony and being that balancing point. So we use our intuition as we do this work, and we let go of any separation or any failure to read signs or any dissociation as we do that. So that's tomorrow, Saturday, and then moving on to Sunday, it's the nine etnas, the white solar mirror. And that white solar mirror is another warrior aspect. So we're working on groundedness and that wise use of honesty and self-understanding as we embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen and the fluidity and the persistence that that mirror brings us. Let's let go of any illusions of separateness, any fear or abandonment or illusions as we embrace these energies on Sunday. And then moving on to Monday... It's a tanko walk, the blue planetary storm. So we're working with the visionary aspect of the storm energy. So we 
<clears throat> we create transformation for others, and we're lighting clear thought with this energy. So let's embrace the gifts of that possibility of freedom and that power of catalyzing. If we let go of any addiction to crisis, any despair or fear or illusion of separateness, we embrace these energies on Monday. And then on Tuesday, <clears throat> it's 11 and a half of the yellow spectral sun. So it's the zero glyph or the 20th glyph, however you want to look at it. And a how is a healing aspect. So this is about rising to Christ consciousness and about striving towards wholeness as we transmit energy to others with the energy of the sun. So let's embrace the gifts of possibility thinking, unconditional love, and the God self. As we let go of any limitation or separation, we embrace these energies. On this day, and it's a full moon at 6.28 Eastern Time, a.m., 6.28 in the morning. And um, it's also Lu Nasa. No, it's pronounced Lu Nasa. Lunasa is the <clears throat> first day of the, um, of the third quarter of the year, and it represents the beginning of the harvest season. It is the first day of fall, and so the harvest celebrations begin, and the, the celebration that's done with Lunasa is with bread because it's the grain harvest. So uh, we celebrate this on Tuesday, on this spectral Sunday with the full moon. So we're celebrating the full moon, Lunasa, and Ahau, the sun, rising to Christ consciousness. So <laughs> all on the same day. The Tuesday's a big day. And then on Wednesday, it's a 12-inch red crystal dragon. And this... Emish energy is beginning the cycle in the Mayan calendar. So it's the first glyph, solar glyph, and it's the dragon. So we have an artist aspect here. We have another new beginning, um, which we had the day before with the new beginning of the fall season. So it's about creation, self-dependence, trusting in the universe, clarity of mind, and let's set our intentions for this new cycle as we embrace these gifts of the being the source of creation in the beginning. We let go of any illusion of lack of support. And then on Thursday, it's a 13 each, the white cosmic wind. So that completes this wave of the dog and that unconditional love in that period of sacrifice as we do for others. And uh, what else with the wind? It's another visionary aspect. So we're working with co-creation of heaven on earth, truth in all matters, and remembering our unity with spirit. And the gift of having that voice of spirit and spirit working through us and letting go of judgment of others or any secretiveness. So we'll talk about that. Next Friday, we come back, and let me just count this. It's Tuesday's the first, second, third, fourth. Uh, Friday is also Tara's birthday, and we will be celebrating that next Friday. 
uh, we can give her birthday wishes all week. It's a season, after all. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and she was born on that 444 day in the Mayan world, and that galactic signature is very powerful. It's <clears throat> that four-tone is self-existing, and it's the seed, and so she's a self-existing seed with all kinds of power packed behind it. So whatever she's growing, it's big. <laughs> we'll talk about that some more next Friday when we come back. So thank you for taking a look with me at the Mayan calendar for the week ahead. And it's not a calendar, it's a record of days. So just to be clear, it's galactic in orientation. So we celebrated that this last week with a day out of time in the the beginning of the new year on Wednesday, the 26th. So, so we're going to take a few minutes now to talk about the housekeeping as we are a listener supporter radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. So for this week, we need $286.25, and that's wonderful. That means we don't have anything from last week. And so we're running even, Stephen, so lots of gratitude for taking care of business this week with radio. Here's how we do it. Go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 1. And, and there we'll find this program in, the, in last night's program on Thursday. At the 8 o'clock hour, you'll see the schedule there. You just want to go to the schedule and look at Friday for the schedule, and you will see at the 8 o'clock hour the, the hard news with Tara and Ron. This is Central Time, so in Texas. And um, on Thursdays at the 8 o'clock hour, you'll find a night at the roundtable with the panel. That is also one of our programs. Click on that icon there. That'll take you directly to our account. And the same on Friday, click on that icon to go to our account. And there you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. So thank you for taking that action and taking care of business that way. We're grateful for you showing up and helping us out with the radio. And with the other programs on the schedule, uh, radio station two, and it's on Saturday at the 3.30 hour, and you'll find a listing for the true history, history, and Sarah and our origins with Tara and Rama on Radio Station 2. So as you click on that icon, that'll take you directly to our account where you can make that donation to our account at BBS Radio. And we're grateful for all that BBS Radio does. We're grateful to have this venue, and we're grateful to have your support. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. We're also assisting Tar and Rama with their needs. And since it's Tar's birthday coming up, maybe we can get these bills paid. Well, what we have for bills is $450 a bill, and that was freshly added up several minutes ago. So $450 is what we need, and um, we also need $1,200 to make a payment uh, to a personal loan that was made for the car, and so um, we hope to have that coming together and we're working with it, and as we can contribute to that as well, that's great. We also have that GoFundMe that's coming through, so I'm not sure what that amount is, but we want to get that commitment paid. Um, 
So there you go. That's it. That's everything that needs to be said except how to make a payment to Taran Rama, which you knew is you need to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net, or you can link to it from their update page. It always has a link on there to uh, to donate. And so that link on the rainbowroundtable.net, you'll find it by clicking on the menu grid on the homepage, and it's listed, the donate link is listed Almost at the bottom of that page, I think, is one more, second to last on that page. So you will see it. And click on that, and that will take you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable account with PayPal, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. And uh, alternatively, you can use the email that's listed there, and that will take you to the friends and family option where you can... uh, Make your money go just a little bit further as we do that as friends. We're all friends here. So that that phone, that uh, email address that you need to insert for gifting, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at com. And I'll say it again, Koran, 9999 at com, And you put that there and that, that that place where where you're sending your gift, and that just makes it go a little bit further. Eway is perfect. We are so grateful for all your contributions in all the ways you show up in your life. So uh, as you're sending something to Rama, let him know that, uh, that you're sending something. And this is the email to use for communicating with Rama. It's Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at... Comcast.net. And uh, also, as you need it, if you need that mailing address, here it is. Rom D. Berkowitz. R-A-M-D. Berkowitz. B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z or Z, depending if you're English or Canadian <laughs> or American. <laughs> and that address is post office box. 280-280. That is located in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico is 87567. I'll say it again, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. And so much gratitude for all the ways that you show up in your lives. Thank you for showing up here. We're grateful that you join us and participate in that way. So 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil, and I'm passing this talking stick. <laughs> it's funny. It's got all kinds of loaves of bread. We're wearing great big wheat sheaths, grain sheaths. You know how you see them all tied up and stuff. Everybody's carrying a sheath. Some people are carrying oh, muffins. If little people are carrying muffins. All right, being more specific, there are lots of fairies and feathers and 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 Sasquatch and already trying to get on here with a huge, big, gigantic loaf of bread. And there's dragon energy, baking bread, and there's unicorn energy providing magical stars, and there's all kinds of little people, the dwarves and the elves, the... Manahoonies and 
Looks like lots of fun to me. Lunasa all around. Greetings, Tarn Rama. Here comes a talking stick. So we're off to see the wizard, are we, Rainbird? <laughs> That's right. We're in the in the year of the wizard. We get to do this every day. Oh, uh, the year of the wizard. Holy macaroni. Holy macaroni. Yeah, the overtone one, which is the act- activator. The overtone is the activator. It's the top of the pyramid that makes the rest of it spin. We got this. We're doing it this year. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, here here comes the talking stick again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Very well done. <laughs> All year, Ron, all year, the overtone. And the overtone is a special sound, is it, Rainbird? It, well, and, you know, every every uh, every day has a tone and a, and a solar glyph, right? So oh, there's yeah. 13 tones, and the fifth is the fifth tone, which is change, right? But they call it the overtone, and the overtone does represent the top of the pyramid, where it's the activator. And it's also a harmonic. The fifth is always a harmonic in the, in the musical scale. So it's a harmonic activation with the magician for the year until next July 26th when we get in a new year. It's, that's what it is, and it's awesome. With the magician, uh-huh. With the magician. Yeah, we got this. We got all the magic. When Rama was playing that role at the time of Arthur, he was the magician, and I was Merlin. Yeah, Merlin the magician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got everything you know now. The fifth time, the fifth overtone equals the harmonic activation with the magician. Let me well, see if I can find it. I can read the words that, uh, as it's described here. I 2023. Right oh, yeah. That's up to that seven. I'll share this with you. It's the center. This represents the movement of the completion with the four, the perfection of centered movement. Five symbolizes the spinning of the pyramid. Your duty and purpose are your mission and your movements with expression. Your vision is of your harmonic tone of yourself. Be aware of the tendency towards impulsiveness and nervousness. Okay. We always like to put the caution parts in there. <laughs> so anyway, your vision is of your harmonic tone of yourself. So aren't we moving into the fifth dimension? That kind of feels like a five, doesn't it? Be aware of impulsiveness and what was the other word? Say it again. Be aware of impulsiveness and what was the oh, other? And, and nervousness. So, yeah. Okay, I get it. I think nervousness and excitement are kind of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, we're in a whole new realm and we're going, oh. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the perfection of the centered position. Good one. All year. All right. 
and 2023 is a seven, so that's the perfection of Saint Germain in the violet flame every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We got this. Right, we got this. I'm passing the talking stick to you. What do we got, Rama? Um, I went and sat in the plasma field today and took a little journey to the sun and got to say hi to a solar <laughs> flare. To put it simply, this might sound ridiculous, yet the sun is a living being. It's a portal, and the plasma field helped me today to interact with the sun. And it's just, you know, awesome to be close to the sun, experiencing what a plasma solar flare looks like as it comes off the surface of the sun and it is huge i mean it goes you know i don't know how high i want to say miles maybe but um i said hi to the flare and it acknowledged me and it was you know this mutual understanding overstanding understanding that we're all living beings connecting through this um, protector of our solar system called Sol. And it, it is like being in the presence of all that is. I don't know how to describe it. I lose the words. Well, you were kind of in bliss there for a while, huh? Yes, I could say I was in bliss, aside from all the Maya talking about, you know, the bathroom file stories. Need I say any more? <laughs> and, and the sun, I mean, the solar flare shooting off the sun said to you in your ear, say hi to the sun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rama, it's not hot when you're close to the sun, are you? Is it? It is cold fusion. Yeah. Right. I don't understand or how to explain the science of what cold fusion is or what plasma actually is other than what we have in our bodies, which is called plasma, hemoglobin. And it brings in all the other stories about why the dark side wants to play with, you know, drinking the plasma, to put it in nice terms. It's, you know... Uh, drinking, in it, drinking it in with your eyes and your... Yeah, energy. I was talking about the adrenochrome and all the other yada yada. What? Uh, I'm just saying... Blood, plasma, the sun, they are all connected. Yeah, but adrenochrome has a dark meaning. You don't want it's to go It's connected there. with the adrenaline in the body. Yeah, but that's a, that's a different thing. Yeah, it's that a different thing. That other thing is a very dark energy. It Let's is. Let's not go there. Yeah. No. We're going to transmute all that. 
Yeah. But the uh, experience is probably cooler there than it than it is down here. I. You didn't experience temperature. I don't, didn't experience anything like that. I just was in my Merkaba vehicle uh-huh. looking at the sun, and I could just experience the silence, the oneness. That's, oh. you know, there was no noise. Yet I know that when the sun sends out frequencies and they pick it up through the instruments on this planet, it makes kind of like white noise or static kind of sounds, but I'm not sure how to... Yeah, but you said that you heard a voice in your ear. Yes, I heard the plasma field, you know, talking to me in my ear. Uh, Well, yeah. And then you said, I saw the solar flare shoot off the sun. Yes. And then you heard a voice in your ear again, and then the voice said, Rama, say hi to the sun. Yes. And so I waved to the sun and said hi. Yeah. And then you saw the solar flare kind of wave to me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know this sounds ridiculous, but it is how we interact with intelligence consciousness, living beings, and not all living beings have, you know, two arms, two legs, uh, a face. I mean, the sun has a face. It's a glowing sphere. (laughs) It does. It does. It's just uh, when you get that close, it could be kind of blinding, couldn't it? It wasn't blinding. It was just like golden sort of whitish light Mm. Uh, very pleasant to look at Mm -hmm. yeah okay now that you had all of that in one day (laughs) right where do we go from here (laughs) well you focused on coming back to the pool yes and then Mrs. Fenn was in the kitchen and she smiled and said it's time for you to be on your way commander yes see you in the light of the most radiant one said the plasma field now namaste blaze the violet fire okay so let's just say that the saga continues on the political spectrum the bathroom file story (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, Trump's legal troubles are getting larger by the second. Mm. Um, let's blaze the violet fire around that situation. How's that, Raw? Yes. So what else? What else? Um... I didn't really talk to anyone else today. Hmm. The straw the economy is super strong right now. Yeah, I 
uh, although uh, when we were listening, I was listening to Professor Wolf. He was saying that that doesn't uh, really get to the issues, you know, out there for people. The ordinary person is being very challenged. It is, yeah, it's yeah. not good in that sense. But there seems it, to be a very much of a hopeful shift for everybody, close, getting closer. I would say in spite of the, the Maya that is going full-blown nonstop, the energies are moving exponentially higher. This is why I chose to just go sit in the plasma field and <laughs> talk to the sun instead of talking about Trump's 41 indictments or however many. I don't know. Yeah, and there, I mean, on the dark side, there's a real push for fascism. It, it, is, it is incessant. Yeah, they want to play with Hitler, and we all know the story. And I bring it back to, you know, President Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, they all got visited by the Galactics, and here we are. And, you know, Congress, I can say, is kind of, po you know, poo-pooing, the stories yet as you know the dust settles and things happen um, there are some issues here that are being brought to the forefront and uh, I just know every day when I go out there and I talk to life the universe and everything that they the force is basically saying they're out of time. They're not out of love. Love is the answer. How do we get past this? In the, well, people got to learn what love is. That's right. That might be good for starters. Forgiveness. The plasma field brought up forgiveness to me mm. and said, in a sense. Forgive everyone and everything, including yourself. Yeah. Yeah. In order for this shift, that's this big shift to happen, we have to come to a balanced place. Forgiveness and compassion. And let go of the past. Yeah. How do you think we're doing? I get a deep sense that we're, like all, all the stories are saying, we're in a new heaven, new earth, yet we're mm -hmm. watching this passion play play out, and I gotta say that the Ascended Masters and Space Commanders that were here when the Founding Fathers put this, this story of this country together, 
they have to deal with the same issues that are kind of coming up now. And slavery, racism, you know, as we are one... Banning books like crazy. Yeah. I just can't even imagine Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn being banned. And uh, what's going on here is the end of the Matrix, the end of this old timeline. And that's why I'm being told by the force and the energies to focus on bliss and to bring that in. That changes when you have love and compassion for these life forms that are basically soulless even though they seem to be, you know, (laughs) ambling about, you know, I don't know how to describe it. There are many dimensions merging with one another, and it is is huge, and it is about disclosure, and I pass the talking stick. Well, we've got about 10 minutes. Mm. (laughs) Um, You didn't get to do what, honey? Amy, I didn't print her yet. You want to play one of um, Aurora Ray? Why don't you do that? Okay. She's got two. Yeah. I got just about enough time for that. Let's see what she has to say. Okay. Um, This is called Mass Ascension Activation, Awakening to a New World. This is what I could say that's unfolding the sun. How many minutes is that, honey? Yeah. Six minutes. Okay, well, let's do that. Here we go. Mass Ascension is nearby. Dear ones, Ascension happens in waves as one group becomes ready, followed by another. Many humans have now reached the gateway to the upper worlds and are ready for mass ascension. I'd like to express my gratitude for having the opportunity to communicate with all of you, members of the family of light from various nations, backgrounds, and interests. Over the past decade, we've been together through thick and thin. I thank you all for your time, kindness, and dedication. You are the small core team that has carried our mission successfully until now. I would also like to thank you who have unselfishly supported me and participated in many discussions on this platform. After thousands of years of evolution, we are finally entering the final phases before mass ascension. At long last, you have reached the state of consciousness that is needed for the mass ascension activation. I would like to explain what is going on in the fields of thought so that you can feel what is going on as much as possible and understand what is now happening. 
the stream of energy coming through Gaia's portal has intensified and is now coming from the central sun of our galaxy in various locations on the Earth's surface. The great event is near at hand. Most of humanity will awaken shortly. The more evolved members of humanity, lightworkers, and starseeds are already experiencing a higher state of consciousness. You are no longer on a personal evolutionary journey. You are being guided by the Galactic Federation because this is an event that affects all humanity. It's time to celebrate. It's time to experience the new world we are going to live in. The whole of humanity is nearing a massive transformation. You will be prepared for this mass ascension activation. In the coming weeks and months, you will realize that your vibrations are quite different from what it was before this season. You will realize that you have become a more positive, loving, caring, and thoughtful person than ever before. You will start attracting friends and family members who share a similar outlook on life as yours. The universe works like an echo chamber. It simply mirrors back what you send out into it. The law of attraction brings like-minded people together so they can build momentum together and achieve their goals quickly and efficiently. This is not a change that can be forced upon you. It is a journey that only you can undertake. The Galactic Federation will guide you along the way, but they cannot take even one step for you. You must make all of the choices along the way and determine your destination for yourself. The fear that many of you feel at this moment reflects your resistance to this change. It is part of a deep-seated need to maintain control over every aspect of your life, including who you become and what form your life takes. This is both understandable and unrealistic, but I know that you will work through these issues with my assistance. Dark forces cannot exist on this frequency for even a single second. They cannot enter it. But you must get rid of all fear in your system. Understand that you are here for all of this because of your own free will choice, even if you have fully forgotten about the contracts you made before you incarnated. Prepare yourself for this ascension. You will soon be confronted with the following facts. Humanity will rise up and embrace its true power as divine beings of light. The dark forces will be removed and taken to a safe place where they cannot do harm. This is already happening behind closed doors. The secret forces that have run this planet for centuries will be exposed and brought to justice. Earth will be restored to its natural beauty with all pollution removed through advanced technology. The old financial system, based on debt slavery, will be replaced by a new one based on fairness and abundance for all. A new superhighway system will be built connecting all continents together using high-speed technology. All human beings will become permanently connected to each other through higher dimensional technology that links consciousness together in perfect harmony once again. This is what you have been waiting for since your birth into this world, mass ascension. Throughout the last decade, the Earth has been undergoing a profound transformation. This change has mainly been in energy form and has been invisible to almost all humanity. The energy that is changing is called life force energy, or chi, and it is the very foundation of all life on Earth. 
The change in this energy is happening because of a fundamental shift in the entire solar system and galaxy from one dimension to another. This ascension process is naturally occurring throughout the entire universe. It is time for our solar system to ascend and Earth with it. This change in dimension will cause a total transformation of humanity and consciousness. Humanity will be able to live much longer than now because of changes in your physical body structure. You will be able to do miraculous things with your mind that you currently consider impossible, such as telepathy and manifesting what you want out of thin air. All of life on planet Earth will be transformed into its higher dimensional form, including your pets, plants, animals, insects, and all other sentient beings. After this transformation takes place, the dream state will become a reality, and your conscious waking state will be like a dream compared to your new reality. This new reality will be like living in heaven on earth. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Okay, well, what do you think, Rom? Uh, ditto. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like there's a excitement in the air. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a full moon in Aquarius coming up here That's as we approach the first harvest season, the moss. That's right. Yeah. August 1st. August 1st, 2nd. Uh, August 1st, 2nd, right. Yeah. The It's the festival of breaking the bread. So let's have... How about we get the phone numbers for our oh, conference 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, let's do that once more. 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353863-POUND. Okay, we got a couple of minutes till the bell rings. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited about the time word. And I'm... I'm, uh, I'm feeling like We've been working a long time towards this moment. Yeah. And now it's here. And yes, we're going to hear from Greg Braden this weekend on two occasions. We've got two things. He's got some things to say, I'm sure. And uh, so. Lion's Gate coming up. Oh, my God. That's right. Well, we're in it, aren't we? We are in it. All right, so let's say aloha, and we'll see you on the conference call, everybody. Namaste. Mm -hmm.
energy which is beyond the sum of the whole you'll experience it you'll become it you'll leave differently than you came you'll know that the message is real you'll wonder about who God must be beyond the doctrine of the religions that you celebrate and that you enjoy and you love. Beyond these, there is a greater energy. One that encompasses you far grander than you have ever felt could be so. My partner, he remarked to you that in came the 1111 in 1987, the harmonic convergence. He spoke of that energy and how it drastically affected this planet and all who were on that you do know it. I'm looking at this group and I tell you this, I know your name. I know who's here. It's glorious to me. I'm the one who said goodbye to you on the other side of the veil when you came in. I saw those colors. How magnificent you are. I saw you come in. Well, the energy of communication that is non-linear. I spoke to you and I said, are you ready to go do it? And you said, I've never been more ready. I'm going to go during a time, I promise. Let me tell you something, human beings, those reading and hearing this. Stuck in a time frame you are, which is appropriate for who you are. I see the potentials of those whose eyes are on the page and those ears who are listening to this on their electronic devices. And I ask you, each one, do you look at yourselves as a warrior of a light? Do you look at yourselves as a lighthouse or are you just making do day by day? You think of yourselves as a spiritual person. Could it be? 
that there's an angel inside. When you look in the mirror, what does it tell you? Do you, do you see just a human being who's activate those energies within your DNA of awareness of God in you? Layer 10, new beginnings, awareness of God in you. If you start looking at yourself differently, I will tell you this, you will see the divinity inside. You'll see the masters of the ages in your eyes. And you'll know what I'm doing here is correct and true. All of the information I have ever given you was so that you steer this planet toward peace on earth. There are those who are afraid and they're stirring in duality. Their heads surface because there is trouble in Israel. And the marker is that when there's trouble in Israel, beware. And the mythology will tell you that there's much more to it even than that. Get ready to go, some will say. There's going to be a change on the planet. I'll ask you some questions in a moment about that, but I want to do a review. This is for the Jews. Yes, there are Jews reading this. Yes, there are Jews hearing this. Yes, there are Jews here now. Let me tell you yet again about a lineage. And let me explain some things to the rest of you you may not understand. And this may clear it up. Let me try to present this in a way I have not before. Jews are not a race. Anthropologists will look at the Jewish civilization and say it has every attribute of a race, but it is not. It does not qualify scientifically as a race, but it has a different attribute civilization that's ever existed. Intuitively, they're picking up on the Akash. There must be a core karmic group that lays on the crystalline grid of the planet and never changes. It cannot change. That means it is the staple of humanity. And in this particular case, in this thing you call civilization, it is the Jews. And they have come in for this purpose. And they were called God's chosen people. And before you... You lift your head and say, why them and not me? Why do they get to be chosen instead of me? Let me finish the sentence. God's chosen people to suffer. And to be moved around the planet. And wherever they went, to have someone who was after them to wipe them out. That's their purpose because they hold the core of the Akash. Intuitively, the dictators, the masters, the Caesars knew it. Intuitively, if they could eliminate the Jews, they themselves would take on the power of the Akash. They would become the core. That's how it goes. And if you think to yourself, you say, well, that's an interesting story. Cryon, you got any proof of that? Just look at your history. And tell me what other people has been pursued in this fashion all the way through their history, all the way through from the Egyptians, 
the Romans to the present day to those in the Middle East to the Nazis they all wanted them gone or enslaved this is what they were chosen for and let me tell you the other side of that and in return for this earth service as a Jew they had a pure karmic attribute that each time they returned in a life they got to be Jewish again this means that instead of passing around the torch of experience as some of you have done through civilization they've always been Jewish once a Jew always a Jew until they step out of that circle and then they cannot go back the, the karmic attribute is a pure one now look around the earth and tell me this perhaps it's not politically correct to say it but I will tell you that Jews run things they're in important places they're the masters of the shops they understand how human nature works because they've been there and they've done that for eons and eons they've got an edge on the rest of you and they pay for it that's who the Jews are and this then plays into these end times we talked about which are really the beginning times how many of you have seen 11 11 on the clock does that say end times to you 11 is illumination twice 11 ocean uh, 11 uh, illumination squared if you want to say it's illumination twice illumination illumination that's not the end there are those who says it's, it's illumination it's not it's illumination why are things so bad crime right now why are they so bad why is there so much fighting why are there enemies then raising their heads and I'm telling you this is what we told you about 18 years ago we told you about this battle this is not new there are those right now who don't understand this and they're frightened and they're fearful and calling themselves even light workers and I say to these light workers were you really truly ever a light worker or did you just give yourself that label maybe it's time to examine yourself are you the are you claiming to be the chef and yet you're afraid to go into the kitchen because it's hot are you claiming to be the the, the windmill that generates electricity but you're afraid of the wind and what about the lighthouse that's afraid of the storm it doesn't exist you can change it and that's why I'm giving you this message don't fear this look upon it in the wisdom of the ages and say this is right this is what we expected now let's temper it let's send light there let's make this a short battle let's make it one that makes a difference crying why would we do that how, how can we possibly do this when the greatest minds of this century are trying to figure it out and they're having trouble and they're squabbling nothing is happening it just seems like they never come to a solution it doesn't seem to make any difference if that's your reality and your truth that's exactly what it'll be but what about this one you send the intelligence of the cosmos 
through a beam of light, climb those stairs, strike that light, and send this intelligence of the cosmos into those areas where those can see light and think of things they've never, as I have no idea how profound this light is, but I can feel the divinity in it. I'm sending messages that are so divine that the leaders of the United Nations will see their way through this. They'll convince those who are fighting to stop that there can be a peace plan, even with a terrorist. It starts to make sense. I told you years ago about this battle, did I not? The old energy and the new. I told you. About spiritual rage. In a day when you didn't even hear the word in the terminology I used it, I said spiritual rage. It's something you can watch for in these times and here it is and there will be those who will continue to say in the name of God the Jews must go they represent an old energy and I want to tell you if you look at them on sorrow for what might happen to them it is their choice to have said it to believe that way it is their choice to turn to the energy they wish it's part of the battle you may not like it Go back and read the first transmission of Cryon in, in book one. I said up to 1% may have to die on this planet. And if that is so, it's 1% that have come for that reason. Understand this. Do not fear this. And then later I told you this has drastically changed. And it has. Through your free choice, it looks like far fewer. We told you this many times over the last three years. Lighthouses were never built in safe places. You want to be a lighthouse, do you, really? And what do we mean by that? You could be a lighthouse here. You could be a lighthouse here. It doesn't seem to be a dangerous place. I could be a lighthouse here. I'll tell you where the danger is. (laughs) Is when you turn on your light, all of those who are dark in the planet see it. At some level, you become a target. You show yourself, do you not? You show yourself to your neighbors, do you not? What you stand for, do you not? You turn on the light, suddenly you're no longer invisible, are you? Are you ready for that? What is your family going to say? What are those workers going to say around you? Are you ready for that? Let me give you some advice. You don't have to evangelize anything. All you have to do is say, I believe in prayer. Who wants to pray with me? You don't have to mention cryon. You don't have to say anything about the new age. Any of your doctrines or your mythologies or anything. All you have to say is who wants to pray with me? Maybe you'll get some volunteers. And so I'm going to address this right now for the readership for the earth. For anyone who wants to hear. I'm going to address this and I'm going to say... Dear Hindu, what is it your doctrine says you should do right now? What is it that you have been taught that you are feeling that is so true in you? Those who are the Sikhs of the earth, what is it that your elders have taught you is appropriate right now? What should you do about this? 
Have you been told that you're a part of the earth energy in any way? Hindu, let me ask you this. Who are you this time around and why are you here? What has the accumulation of lifetimes brought you here? Buddhist, what have you been taught that you could do? Buddhist, are you truly part of everything? Is there a oneness? If so, that puts you in the middle of the problem, does it not? Through the energy that you generate, can you not see how you might affect the others? So sit and generate that energy for you are powerful, my friend. You are a peaceful person and your vibration is important on this planet. What can you do? You believe in prayer? Of all of the stories of the ages, yours are known the best. And you've seen the miracles of God. You know how you escaped Egypt, those things took place. You know you were fed from heaven, those things took place. Is it such a thing, a miracle? Is it such a thing to believe that you could be delivered yet again? And in the delivery process, perhaps you could be the catalyst to create peace on earth. Did you know, Jew, that your lineage was set up in this fashion so that someday it could be solved with the core karmic race, the civilization that would make the difference and be the catalyst to peace on earth? Or will you shudder in fear and will you say, there is no solution, there never was, it's gonna last forever, the problems are unsolvable. Which one are you gonna be, Jew? Look back on the words of your master, Elijah and Elisha, and what they had to say to you that a human being is capable of. Look at their wisdom. And keep your eyes on Jerusalem. And temper your anger, for it is not commensurate with your magnificence. Christian, what are you going to do? What have you been taught? about the might of the Master Christ. What have you been taught? Have you been taught that you can change things with prayer? And the answer is yes. Is it not so? I will tell you that is communication with God. It is strong and you are up to it. Join the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Jew send that light to those places that need it now is the time you're part of the issue a profound part a beautiful part your light is so great Muslim Muslim you love the prophet don't you alright let me take you back to the cave I want to give you something to think about. I want to give you something to think about. You pray as much as anyone on the earth and you do it on a schedule which is regular. So why not start these prayers differently? 
It will not violate anything that you which is regular. So why not start these prayers differently? It will not violate anything that you've been taught for you're going to be praying for peace on earth. In the cave, the prophet Muhammad met with the angel. And I want you to remember what has been written that the angel said to him. He was supposed to leave the cave and go out and unite the tribes of Arabia and give them the God of Israel. And that's the truth. Look at where the prayer rugs face. They faced Jerusalem before they were changed to Mecca for political reasons. Look at this. Look at the core information and the beauty of the unity that the prophet asked you to have. A billion strong you are. Part of the solution you are. Oh, there are others that I've not mentioned them, but you can you can put your name in there. What do you think about God? Do you think you can make a difference? Or do you think God is just pushing the parts around to make your life miserable? <laughs> well, if you're a reader of this message and you're a hearer or you're in the room, I invite you to feel the love that we have. We've known that you are coming to hear, to see, to experience. It's a beautiful time for this, a precious time it is. I want to review for you finally who the light worker is. Let me paint a picture yet again for who the light worker is on this planet. There she is. They don't look like a giant spiritual being. They look ordinary and average. But then you start going inside and you see things that the masters had. They're balanced. That's the first way you can tell they're balanced. They're so balanced you want to be with them. (laughs) You ever met somebody who just wanted to be with them? You just want to walk with them because they're not judging you. They're beautifully listen when you talk and they, they say things which are appropriate wise. They're not judgment anybody. They make fun of anyone. There's no drama around them. There's a there's a radiance that you can feel. There's a joy. And you just say, well, I want to be with this person. I just want to walk with them. That's the light worker. And that didn't come easy. There's a vibration there that touches the crystalline grid. They know all about the Akash. This is a balanced human being. They've been able to solve the duality. Solve the duality. Duality is a puzzle, is it not? The duality is a puzzle. You've got free choice, but you've got an angelic countenance. What are you going to do with that? You're placed upon the earth where there's the darkest dark and the lightest light. How are you going to navigate? That's the duality. That's the the piece of darkness that chases you around, the consciousness that you all joke about, makes you do things. They've solved it. They've balanced it. They're centered. That's a light worker. 
They stand tall, even though they may not be tall. Their countenance seems bigger than it is. That's the light worker. They're sure of themselves, but they are not filled with themselves. That's the light worker. They look at you with compassionate eyes. That's the light worker. They care about you, no matter who you are or what you look like. Where you been? That's the light worker. Does this sound like perhaps it's echoing some of the masters that you you have followed? Does it sound like the Buddha or the Christ? Does it, does it sound like perhaps the Prophet Muhammad? And if you look at that, I'll tell you, oh yes. Because those are the attributes of the masters of the planet. And inside your DNA, there is mastery waiting, waiting for you to capture. The lighthouse is intuitive. This person is intuitive. They know when to talk. They do not throw everything. They're intuitive enough to know when to pray and what to pray for. They can look at somebody and know if they're telling the truth or not. They are not judgmental in all of this. They use it to navigate through their own lives. And they're no different than you. Their lives are just like yours. One day they might be doing the laundry. One day they may be sending light to the Middle East. But they're a lighthouse and they know how to do both with the same kind of divine approach. You ever think of that? Ordinary things in your life. Can you celebrate the ordinary? Can you send light to your leadership as you wash the dishes? A light worker can One who strikes the light walks up those stairs. They know how. They know how to put things in balance. They know what to do with a dark side. Crying, what are you going to do with a darkness in my life? The light worker knows what to do with it. Long ago, they put it in the backseat. They don't let it drive anymore. There's no more depression. There's no more worry. Anger, slow to anger, very slow to anger, wise to respond. They look at life far differently, like the masters of all. And you might say, that's a a tall order. (laughs) That's a tall order. It is not. They're here. They're reading. They're listening. They're in the room. And they may surprise you what they look like and how old they are or how young they are. But they're here in various stages of training and how old they are or how young they are. But they're here in various stages of training and action. Like the warriors who train and train and train to be part of a perfect army. Carrying swords that are that are not for killing, for celebrating the bridges swords. We've spoken of this again. The bridge of swords is part of the final battle. We sound like perhaps we're speaking in metaphoric tones. Indeed, it's the only picture we can give you, which is that, that, that this battle will indeed be solved and indeed have a solution to it. And the 
lighthouses carry the swords. It will be held high as those who are the winners pass under. And who are the winners? The civilization called Earth. The civilization called Earth. And the new Jerusalem will come a day. There will come a day when the potential is so great, I will tell you, where these things will be behind you. And you might say, well, I I may not be here. Oh, yes, you will. (laughs) You may be very young, but you'll be here. Because you're not going to miss it. You would miss it. You worked too hard. You've been at this too long to miss the fruits of your labor. Don't you want to come and see a peaceful earth? Don't you want to? Does it warm your heart to know that you all are part of it? Listen, reader, what are you going to do when you put the book down? Will you give God 30 seconds? Will you give God 30 seconds? Peace. No phones. No televisions or radios. Just 30 seconds. And would you perhaps even dare to say I am that I am? And the divinity in me is going to make a difference on this planet. I feel the truth when I hear it and when I read it. How are you with that? What about you right now? Oh, there are so many involved today. You have no idea as you sit in front of this meeting and you think it's just cryon and you're thinking you're just you're in a channeling meeting. That's all that you are. You don't know the readership here. You don't know how far this is going to go. They're with you now. And so I invite you to join them, even though they're out of time with you. And I want you to celebrate their healing for their havings. What about you here? And I use that word here in this room. Are you ready to leave just like you came? What about talking to your DNA in a way you never have before? What would you do if I told you you could leave younger than you came? (laughs) Did I... Did I note that some ears were picked up there? That's the promise. That's what you have control of. Your aging, your health. Why do you talk about healing so much? I'll tell you this. It's because the light worker does a far better job of making a white light when he's healthy. That's why. We want you to stick around a long time. And not everybody in this room thinks they will. I know who's here. I know what's wrong with you. How'd you like to change it? There are healers in the room. I know who they are too. There are four people, human beings in this assemblage who have profound healing knowledge that have healed many, that goes beyond anything that you've experienced. Would you like to know who they are? They do. It's your free choice, you know, to look around to find these. Do you just pass by them? How about a sense where you could come up to somebody and know that's who's there? 
What if that was their gift? How would you know it? That's part of the interdimensional DNA affecting you so that you can tell who you're, and you're never gonna know it, are you? Unless you start bumping around and meeting people and asking questions. Do you do that or not? This goes on all the time. Perhaps it's time that you started knowing more about who's with you in a place like this. My goodness, you assemble as light workers to hear these messages and yet you're not willing to meet each other to the degree that you would meet the healers in the group. It's called synchronicity. It's why we bring you together. We challenge you. Those in this room to know more about those next to you before you leave. You may be surprised. You may be shocked that they have the answer why you came we're going to leave the message has been stated and so it is greetings dear ones I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service I want to give a message as time marches forward, this planet of yours begins to shift, consciousness changes, and even some of those things you never thought could change are beginning to. We've said this before, that an older consciousness of this planet has always been linear. It's a way of thinking, dear ones, that remains the same and turns back upon itself. It's a way of thinking that is in a circle or maybe even a box that causes history to repeat itself and the same mistakes to be made again and again. And so I wanna talk about that. I've talked in the past about the boxes of belief and I want to extend that and continue that. So I'm going to ask you a question and the answer may surprise you. It is the only one to tell about the lineage of time and pharaohs and none of the others do. You have visited temple after temple after temple and they don't give you the history the guides do. The only thing you see on the walls and the hieroglyphs, the only thing you see is about the belief they had. And the belief they had, dear ones, was that they were only here for a little while. It's about guidance to the afterlife. That's what it's about. They speak of a benevolent God, open to everyone, temple after temple. Think about it. Where did you see history? Where did you see the names of the battles that they won or they lost? Where did you hear about the flooding on the Nile that always occurred? Or perhaps there was a plague or two. None of that was ever given. It is not on the walls. The only thing that is on the walls is instructions to the afterlife. 
picture after picture of those gods that represent the creative source, all of them participating in one idea that all Egyptians are included in the afterlife. And here are the instructions on how to get there. That's what you saw. This becomes then a box. Very early on, thousands and thousands of years ago, Egypt was defined by their belief system. And you can see it, all of the ancients, all of the writing, that's what it's about. Now they're not alone, dear ones. For culture after culture, young, ancient, old, define themselves by their belief system, not by their borders or their names or their countries. As far back as you can go, they each have something that links them to that which is beyond. And you start asking some of those in their belief systems and it sounds so similar. If you were asking a priest here, what's it all about? And he would say, it is about us preparing for something beautiful and benevolent and doing the best we can to center ourselves until we reach that place that is the afterlife. And that was the concentration, all of the metaphors of the river that you're cruising on right now is the life of upper and lower Egypt on the way to the afterlife. Today, if you ask an Israeli, what is the most profound thing you have? And the Israeli may put their hand on their heart and they would say, when I go to the, the temple of King David, where he was buried, he said, there's nothing like that. He showed us the one God and the way to the afterlife. You see, the Israelis are filled with the lineage. That is their preciousness. That is the gold for them. It's the lineage. And it's all about getting to another place, dear ones. If you ask a Navajo right now, today, what are you about? What are you about? And they will immediately bring up their ancestors and they say, there is the lineage of the Navajo. And they would say, this is our belief and they are the ones that help us to the next life. If you ask a Muslim, tell me about the great prophet Muhammad. They may put their hand on their heart and say, this is the one that over one billion people on this planet believe is the one to lead us to the afterlife. The one that shows us how to live and pray. Is this sounding familiar? 
belief after belief after belief sounds almost like the same box with different names. Ask a Christian about the Christ and they will put their hand on their heart and they'll say, this is the prophet that is our salvation and showed us how to get to the afterlife. Box after box, this planet is not defined by countries and borders. It's defined by belief. A fifth of the world's population is Hindu. And if you ask them, they will put their hand on their heart and they say, it's the oneness of all things. It's the nirvana. It's the clearing of the karma so that in the afterlife we'll be clean. If you ask a Buddha, they'll put their hand on their heart and repeat the same thing. Box after box after box. You have an earth, dear ones, that is spiritual. You may not think of it this way, for some of you come from countries where there's an amalgamation of beliefs, but even in that, there are churches with spires that stick to the sky wherever you go to remind you about the belief that is there. Oh, it may be varied, but it's a box and it's strong. So even in these countries, it's not about your provinces or your states or your borders. It's about belief. It always has been. What's going to happen? Because dear ones, it gets harder from here. Let me start asking some questions today. In these boxes of belief, Boxes that are very strict, one with another. Some boxes say, we are the only box, and all of the other ones have it wrong. Oh, same God, but you have it wrong. Box after box, fighting with each other. If you take a look at the wars of this planet and the ancients, what were they about? They were about the boxes, weren't they? When you take a look at the conquerors, quite often they're identified by the box, by the belief. What's going to happen? Let me ask you this. Do all Christians get along? And you will say, well, what has happened over the years is now there's over 300 sects of Christianity and they don't get along. They point to the other boxes within their own box and say they have it wrong. Let me ask you, do all Muslims get along? And the answer is no. Do all Israelis get along? No. (laughs) Do all Buddhists who believe in oneness get along? And the answer is no. In every single box that still exists, that is alive with a belief system, It has fractured itself. And there are multiple boxes within boxes within boxes. And so the next question is this. What happens next? Does this planet continue to fracture into more boxes that disagree? And if so, what is the ultimate 
product of that? And the answer will always be this, war. And there are so many who will say, it's inevitable and this is why. Brian, you have pegged it and this is why, because we can't get along in our boxes. That's one opinion. The second opinion, it comes from those who will say, well, human nature shows that it's not gonna get any better. That we will struggle and struggle and struggle. And they will say human nature shows that there are no solutions and there never have been. And we continue to do irrational things like war with each other, pick up the pieces, rest, and then war with each other, pick up the pieces, rest, and war. There's a third opinion, dear ones, and it comes from high consciousness and naivety. And it says that someday all will be one and there will be one belief system. There will be a great aha where everyone drops the boxes and believes the same thing. That's not gonna happen, dear ones, never. Where is this going? What could be a future of this planet with all of this before us? And isn't it absurd, you might say, that we are arguing over the most loving source, creative love, compassion in the universe. And we're killing each other because one person doesn't do it right. Absurd. And now the answer, it is absurd because the consciousness of this planet has always been low. Human nature has always been in the dark. Human nature is so dysfunctional. It never learns from generation to generation, from lifetime to lifetime. You come in, you forget, and you do it again. And you come in and you forget and you do it again. And suddenly there's a change on the planet. Have we mentioned that even the ancients for thousands of years writing it on the walls said that something would happen at the precession of the equinoxes and that if this humanism was still here on the planet, it would shift. Perhaps some of you know it as the Mayan calendar, but others of you know it as the journey of the feathered serpent. Perhaps some of you would know it as the awakening of the puma. There are so many names given to these things joining of the eagle and the condor. It's everywhere. Start doing your research to see what the ancients have said, not the scriptures that you've been given recently. I'm talking about the ancients and what they said. You are sitting in a cauldron of energy you didn't expect, where dark things are starting to pop out of the walls seemingly and show themselves well, they never did before, never did before. Inappropriatenesses are starting to be shown and told, and it's in your media. It's not a spiritual revolution, it's consciousness. 
It's respect. Did you notice? This is the beginning of a change of human nature. When human nature starts to change, the boxes start to move. And this is what I want to talk about right now. I'll give you another scenario. It's the big T word. Tolerance. I want to paint a picture and you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe this. You're going to laugh. Brian, you've gone too far. I want to take you into the future. I want to take you to a world, a planet called Earth. Generations and generations from now. It's at peace, dear ones. It has been for a long time. But in honor of this country, I'm going to take you to a place called Mecca. There is a celebration going on, just like there has been for hundreds of years, and millions are coming. They're streaming from all over. Billions would love to be there, and only millions can attend. And you've seen this picture before. This is generations from now, and it's different. It's different. And they're all there, and they're all meeting for the reasons they do. In honor of their prophet and their traditions, and then everything stops. Everything stops, and there's silence. And they make a, a, a parting of the ways, and in comes an entourage. And you say, who is this making their way to a special stage? A special stage in an appropriate area that doesn't violate any protocol. A whole group of individuals. And then you realize who they are. It's the Israeli contingent. And they take and they mount the stage and they sing a song of celebration in honoring of their brothers, the Muslims. You think nothing of thinking of singing happy birthday when it's not your birthday to somebody whose birthday it is. Today, there's two of you, and you sing, and you enjoy it. It's not your birthday, but you sing it because you're proud of them. Do you understand this? What if you were to extend that simple idea to the boxes? The boxes will remain, dear ones. But what the difference is, is they not only will tolerate one another, they will see that which is appropriate. It's okay for cultures to have traditions and prophets because it all leads to the same place. And the Israelis are singing to the Muslims in their own way and their own songs. And the Muslims are sitting there with their hands on their hearts saying, thank you, brother, thank you. And when the Israelis are done, they get off the stage and the Christians do it. And you think that is a fantasy? You wait. The dissolution of the boxes will never happen. The boxes become circles. And they become wonderful, wonderful circles of light and life. That intertwine in appreciation and singing that says, I see you and I see your faith. Isn't it great? We have the same God. Now go do your own thing.
and I'll do mine. Perhaps it's not your faith and you you hear the the prayers going off right now at the appropriate time and you might see a Muslim on on a rug in prayer facing the right direction. What is your reaction? What is your reaction? I want you to take just a moment. When you see that and put your hand on your heart and say, thank you, brother. For your dedication to the same God that I love and you love. What a concept. That is where this planet can head. You're starting to see it in such small ways as you come out of a darkness called old human nature. Is it possible? I'll tell you, that's peace on earth. It's not what's going to happen from one country to another. It just isn't. It's what's going to happen with one belief system to another. That will create the peace that you're after. And all things will be added to it. That's to say that peace on earth between countries must start with the belief systems. That's what the ancients here showed you. That's all they cared about. Not history. But that you would see the light that they saw. Go from this place hopeful and knowing that you're alive at a very auspicious time, a beautiful time. History will remember you, light worker. And so it is. We are all servants of peace, everyone. Okay. I'll just move this a bit here. Greetings, Mother. Greetings. In the light. In the light of the most radiant one. In the office of the Christ. And only in the office of the Christ. We invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the Violet Babe. We ask at this time for the sound of one hand clapping (laughs) for every thought multiplied for the good of all. 
for the oneness of being, for that which we know as the law of one, as one is helped, all is helped. For that is peace and love and sharing. Greetings, Mother. Greetings, children of Ra. Hi, Elsion. <laughs> and Mother. We are in a most auspicious time as Cryon has said. All the folks are here to help us shift this story. It is happening now. All the old timelines of old ideas about these boxes, as he put it. Haven't heard crying for a while, Mother. No. No. We can say. Like His Holiness says, my religion is kindness and compassion. Yeah. How we heal this story at this time begins within us. There are so many awesome events unfolding at this time as Hmm. Full moon and Aquarius. Pluto is doing his dance, bringing up all the stuff to be transfigured. It is at this time this oneness the sound of one hand clapping that is the energy that's pouring in as more and more is getting lifted up in this realm. Happy Lion's Gate, as it is preceding right now, as we approach 8A. Mm -hmm. Aria, 
You have a question? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was um, I was going to. Um, it's been a while, Mother. No, good, good to hear from you. I wait, wait all the way through Cryon. <laughs> oh, anyway, um, I, I've been drawn to um, the goddess Tiamat lately, and there's barely any information about her online. Um, what can you tell me about her? I'm sorry, it's a little off topic, but eh. Tiamat is another name for the Great Mother. That this ancient story began with in Babylon. Tiamat also is the name of this immortal being that is part of the Eternals that were the original, let's say, folks who started to see life forms throughout the planets and sun systems eons, eons ago. There are many stories about Tiamat and hmm, quite a interesting subject. I haven't talked about Tiamat for a long time. Yes. It is This goddess energy, Inanna, Isis, Tiamat, Mother Mary, it is about this frequency of what is coming in at this time as the return of the goddess is at hand. Patriarchy is uh, going by the wayside. Enough of the patriarchy in this polar universe with Polarities can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. Positive and negative. It's like magnetics. They go together. As we ascend, things shift, things change. Yet the nature of this local universe is about that polarity which is part of this divine experiment 
unity within diversity. And it is unfolding even as we speak. The rainbow nations are showing up now to change the story. Not about one side or the other. How this integration of masculine, feminine balanced this is the nature of this local system it's part of the great cycle that's unfolding here as the old timelines are going out of our experience to say that with the old matrix it is no longer relevant right now what is before us is this now moment and this eternal now is what's completing itself as we stay in that oneness. Tiamat is a very ancient name. There are stories that at a certain point Earth was called Ea Ea Earth Ea R T H Oh yes <laughs> It's Ancient story about wayward children, Enki Enlil, Nin Herzog, Anu, Tiamat, in the passion play. It is complicated because it is what we volunteered to step into as we knew how deep this is going to get and we were going to forget who we are who we were it's come full circle now with all the stuff that's coming out how to 
heal the traumas, the memories of what occurred eons ago. We can say life in Babylon was not exactly a fun time. It was an interesting experience in that period. Yet, there are folks that would like to continue that samsara story as we are seeing being played out right now. It is over like the song says let us bury the double bladed axe with the sword. Mm-hmm. Turn those swords into hmm, a hole and a rake so that we can work with Mother Gaia and grow what is needed, infinite joy, ecstasy, abundance, the seeds of life are within us in that context of we are creator gods and goddesses of the most high. We are being given all that is needed to complete this mission at this time. As what Aurora Ray is sharing each day by doing the Kundalini Yoga, working with the breath, staying in the bliss and the oneness as things come up. And it is the nature of oneness. It is how the universe works. As stuff comes up, we heal it in the moment and it shifts right at this particular juncture in what you call this now timeline 2023 we have the abilities to change the dimensions currently rainbow crystal children generation Z are bringing this forth right here right now it is about letting go of the old timelines of separation 
and samsara. Tiamat in all her magnificence, let's say there were cracks in the cosmic story. And it is about listening to what's in the heart, the law of one. One is healed, all are healed. spoke about Quasacuado has returned Lord Shiva is here Vishnu Krishna all the aspects of what we understand understand overstand of this present time Like we said, all the folks are here. As we call them in, they show up. Gotta take a quantum leap in faith. Step off the edge of the cliff. Not a joke, it's real. We can fly. Use your consciousness. Use the force. This is what these messages are speaking about. As we use the force, our physical reality changes in the moment. It's quite uninteresting time to be here. More will be said about Yes. Um, I presume she's back with the rest? (laughs) Yes. It is a glorious time to be here, to witness these events. As you want to speak with Tiamat, call her in. She will share with you her wisdom. She is a wily one. Dragons tend to be yes. My uh, my friend actually um, uh, got got me started on her. He um, he actually pr- um, prays to her and calls her in a lot, and he, uh, he inspired me to do so too. She is a dragon goddess after all. Yes, you ask her; she will take you on her back and give you a ride.
There are many worlds. Fun. I, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> Thank you, Mother. Yes. Have a good journey. <laughs> good to hear from you, Arya. Yes. May the force be with you always. <laughs> and we got also with you. Indeed. We better be on our way. Lots to share. More. More will be said about Tiamat tomorrow. Could you, I'm just asking you, Mother, that could you tune up the democracy now when we can play it from that computer? It's so much clearer. Okay. Thank you, Mother, but thank you. Greeting in the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Adonai Shabbayon Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh Adonai Shabbayon Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh Adonai Shabbayon Ilyash Kadosh, Adonai Shabbayon Ilyash, Ilyash, Ilyash Oh, hey, Yava, Adonai, Basu, Baragas. Oh, it's the 4th of July again. <laughs> oh, Omitito, everybody. Huh. Oh. Hi, Mama. Oh. Where did you go? <coughs> oh, Taos Mountain. Oh. To just be in the radiant energy of the moon coming in and the folks that are uh, coming in and out of the mountain. It is, it's getting there. It is getting there. Mm. There are so many folks that are coming in and landing. It is like LAX and then some the interdimensional beings that are showing up. Hmm. And send more love. Quite a ride. We're certainly not alone, Mother. No. <laughs> um. Pass this talking stick here. Well, we want want to pass it to that. Oh. Computers talking. Um, oh. Just it's it's clearer. Okay. All right. It'll take a moment. <gasps> um. Oh my. 
Kitty's doing right there. When Ariar mentioned Tiamat, I thought of, you know, Dodi and Dai. Yeah. There's up there in those Himalayas, right? They are. <laughs> in a whole new, whole different world. Here we go. All right. democracy now climate change is here it is terrifying and it is just the beginning the era of global warming has ended the era the era of global boiling has arrived temperature records are continuing to be shattered across the globe as july has become the hottest month ever recorded on the planet more than 170 million people are under a heat alert in the United States. We'll speak to two journalists covering the climate crisis, then to Capitol Hill. I'm Greg Gassad. I'm the new member of Congress representing the heart of Texas from San Antonio up to Austin, Texas. Uh, and I'm on thirst strike. I've been out here uh, over eight hours now, with no water, no food, taking no breaks from the Capitol steps to protest against Governor Abbott taking people's water breaks away from them. We'll get Congressmember Kassar's response to the White House's new measures to provide workers relief from extreme heat. Then President Biden's designated national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, on August 28, 1955. 14-year-old Emmett Till was tortured and lynched in Mississippi. We'll speak to Emmett's cousin, who was with him the night of his lynching. Back then in the darkness, I could never imagine a moment like this. Standing in the light of wisdom, grace, and deliverance. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Federal prosecutors have filed new charges against former President Donald Trump and another one of his aides in the indictment around his mishandling of classified documents. The charges accuse Trump of attempting to, quote, alter, destroy, mutilate, or conceal evidence, unquote, and inducing others to do so. Prosecutors also added a new count under the Espionage Act for showing classified national security materials to visitors to his Bedminster Golf Club. The revised indictment states Trump and Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira pressured the director of IT at Trump's Florida estate to delete security camera footage so it could not be seen by a federal grand jury. According to the indictment, de Oliveira said, quote, the boss wanted the server deleted. De Oliveira is also accused of lying to federal investigators when he denied having knowledge of boxes of documents stashed at Mar-a-Lago. Prosecutors contend De Oliveira oversaw and even helped move the boxes alongside Trump aide Walt Nauta, who has already been indicted. 
This superseding indictment is not to be confused with a possible third indictment against Trump related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election for which Trump's lawyers met with special counsel Jack Smith's office Thursday. New climate data show July is on track to become the hottest month in human history with global temperatures rising to about 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. On Thursday, the head of the World Meteorological Organization said climate action is not a luxury, but a must. While UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres scolded world leaders over inaction on the climate. Climate change is here. It is terrifying and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. The UN's warning came as hundreds of wildfires fueled by record heat continue to burn out of control around the Mediterranean. In Algeria, Croatia, France, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Tunisia, and Turkey. In China, Typhoon Daksuri made landfall today in the southeastern Fujian province, sparking fires, downing power lines, and shuttering schools and businesses. On Thursday, the storm lashed southern Taiwan after battering the northern Philippines, where it killed at least 39 people. Here in the United States, over 170 million people are under extreme heat alerts as sweltering temperatures spread across the country. On Thursday, President Biden announced a series of measures to tackle the impacts of the extreme heat. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out where they refuse to protect these workers in this awful heat. But Biden made no mention of the fossil fuel industry's role in the climate crisis and continued to ignore calls from climate activists and scientists to declare a climate emergency. We'll speak with Congressmember Greg Kassar, who went on a thirst strike this week in Washington, D.C. In more climate news, the Supreme Court has cleared the way for construction of the contested Mountain Valley pipeline to resume. The court on Thursday lifted a halt on a section of the project that had been issued by a lower court earlier this month after a challenge by environmental groups. Leaders of Niger's military have declared their support for the mutinous officers who declared a coup Wednesday against the nation's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. Two days after members of his own presidential guard deposed him, President Bazoum has refused to step down. It's not clear who's currently running Niger's government. On Thursday, supporters of the coup set fire to the headquarters of Bazoum's governing party. Meanwhile, The Intercept reports a leader of the attempted coup was trained by the U.S. military at the army base formerly known as Fort Benning, named after a Confederate general, which was recently renamed Fort Moore. Just last month, coup leader and Brigadier General Musa Salobarmo met with the head of U.S. Army Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Jonathan Braga, at a U.S. drone base in Niger. African officers trained by the U.S. military have taken part in 11 coups in West Africa since 2008. 
The World Health Organization is warning of a growing health crisis for the 3.4 million people forced to flee fighting in Sudan with rising rates of infectious diseases reported among displaced populations. Heavy fighting continues to rage in the capital Khartoum, where airstrikes and artillery fire have killed at least 16 civilians this week. In Sudan's western Darfur region, a leader of the Masalit community says more than 10,000 people have been killed in the past two months. More than 300,000 people, the vast majority of the Masalit, have fled across the border into neighboring Chad. Refugees describe a harrowing journey to escape attacks by militias and fighters with the rapid support forces. I've been here for 13 days and the people we left behind were killed in their homes. There are others who are trapped there and the road remains unsafe. If there are three or four people, they'll kill them and take their belongings. Russian President Vladimir Putin welcomed African leaders to St. Petersburg for the annual Africa-Russia summit, coming just days after the Kremlin pulled out of the Black Sea grain deal that allowed safe passage of shipments of food and fertilizer from Ukraine. Heads of state from 17 African countries joined this year's gathering, down from 43 African leaders who attended in 2019. Putin said Russia will be able to replace Ukrainian grain exports Sports and promise free shipments of food to six African nations. Our country can replace Ukrainian grain both commercially and as a free aid to the poorest countries in Africa, especially as we are again expecting a record harvest this year. Russian President Putin also pledged to consider a peace plan from African leaders to end the Ukraine war. Among those spotted on the sidelines of the summit was the leader of the Wagner Group of Russian mercenaries, Evgeny Prigozhin, who was photographed shaking hands with a senior ambassador from the Central African Republic. It was the first time Prigozhin has appeared publicly inside Russia since he led a failed revolt against Russia's military in June. The United States Senate has approved the largest military budget in history. Its passage sets up a partisan clash with the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, which narrowly approved a military budget packed with anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQIA amendments. On Thursday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called passage of the Senate's $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act, quote, a glimmer of hope for the American people. And a bipartisan process is precisely what the American people are yearning for. In a fractured Congress, Democrats, Republicans coming together to provide something as critical as our national defense. Just 11 senators voted against the record military budget, six Democrat, four Republican and Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. Senators overwhelmingly rejected an amendment offered by Sanders that would have slashed the military budget by 10 percent. Ahead of the vote, Sanders said the U.S. should prioritize spending on health care and social programs over a bloated military budget. Unbelievably, our life expectancy is actually declining. Our child care system is dysfunctional. Millions of parents unable to find affordable sites for their kids. We have a major housing crisis. 600,000 Americans are homeless. And oh, yes, the planet is on fire and the world we are leaving future generations will be increasingly unhealthy. But somehow we never have enough money to address those crises.
In El Salvador, human rights advocates are warning of severe due process violations after lawmakers approved the use of mass trials for the tens of thousands of people who've been arrested under President Nayib Bukele's brutal crackdown on gangs. Salvadoran officials said up to 900 defendants could be prosecuted at one time. El Salvador has been under a state of exception for 16 months, suspending several constitutional protections and leading to the arbitrary detention of over 70,000 people without access to legal representation or fair trials. Meanwhile, Honduras is planning to build an island prison to detain hundreds of suspected gang leaders. This comes after President Chiamara Castro earlier this month approved another extension of a state of emergency that's been in place since last year to tackle gang violence. In Ecuador, authorities have recovered the remains of people killed during a prison riot over the weekend in the city of Guayaquil. At least 31 people were reported dead, but the toll could be higher. Ecuador's prison system has been plagued with violence and abuse, with prisoners facing overcrowded and squalid conditions. President Guillermo Lasso has declared a state of emergency in Ecuadorian prisons. Over 400 people have died in prison riots in Ecuador since 2021. Back in the United States, data shows the rate of gun suicides among black teens has topped the rate among white teens for the first time as gun suicides reached an all-time high last year. The data compiled by the Centers for Disease Control also shows black children and teens have a gun homicide rate 20 times higher than white children and teens. Guns remain the leading cause of death for children and teens, with the rate of gun deaths among minors soaring by 87% over the last decade. Last year, over 48,000 people in the United States died from guns, an average of one person every 11 minutes. And in Texas, the Houston Independent School District's eliminating librarian positions at 28 schools in the upcoming school year and will replace some libraries with so-called team centers, essentially disciplinary centers for students. The widely blasted move comes after state Republicans forcibly took over the Houston Independent School District earlier this year. Those most affected will be children of color in lower income areas. Meanwhile, two Texas bookstores and three national bookseller associations have sued over a Texas bill requiring private booksellers to rate books based on levels of, quote, appropriateness and banning, quote, sexually explicit material from libraries. Valerie Kohler is the owner of the Blue Willow Bookshop in Houston, a co-plaintiff in the lawsuit. We're not going to read them all. And for us to have to rate them, I think, sends a message to the librarians and to the students that um, you're allowed to read this, you're not allowed to read that. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the climate crisis as temperature records continue to be shattered across the globe. On Thursday, the World Meteorological Organization announced July is on pace to be the hottest month ever recorded on Earth. Here in the United States, 170 million people are under heat alert. On Thursday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the world has entered the age of global boiling. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa, and Europe, it's a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here. It is terrifying, 
and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. It is still possible to, meet, to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the very worst of climate change, but only with dramatic, immediate climate action. Here in the United States, President Biden unveiled new measures Thursday to combat the crisis, but resisted calls to declare a climate emergency. I don't think anybody can deny the impact of climate change anymore. There used to be a lot of time when I first got here, a lot of people said, oh, it's not a problem. Well, I don't know anybody, I shouldn't say that. I don't know anybody who honestly believes climate change is not a serious problem. Just take a look at the historic floods in Vermont and California earlier this year. Droughts and hurricanes that are growing more frequent and intense. Wildfires spreading a smoky haze for thousands of miles, worsening air quality. The record temperatures, and I mean record, are now affecting more than 100 million Americans. We're joined now by two guests. Darna Noor is fossil fuels and climate reporter at The Guardian. Her recent piece, Biden announces new measures to protect Americans from extreme heat. Her new investigation, Project 2025, planned to dismantle U.S. climate policy for next Republican president. We're also joined by David Wallace-Wells, writer for New York Times Opinion and columnist for The New York Times Magazine, who's been writing about climate change, how it's accelerating. His latest piece is headlined, A Grim Climate Lesson from the Canadian Wildfires. He's also author of the book, The Uninhabitable Earth. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! David, let's begin with you. If you can respond to what President Biden announced yesterday, and does it go far enough? I think the short answer is no, it doesn't go far enough. Um, we're talking about a really dramatic summer here in the United States. I think many Americans are living with some amount of climate fear, 170 million Americans under extreme heat advisories. Um, and what the president offered was a pretty meek rhetorical gesture um, mixed with some very small policy measures. Um, I'm glad that he's speaking about climate as opposed to being silent as he has been for a long time. But to my mind, um, he's not meeting the American public where they are at all. And Arna Noor, your response, you wrote a whole piece on this. I would have to agree. Um, I, I agree with David that I think most of what we saw was rhetorical gesture from the Biden administration. Um, I do, I did speak with experts who described some of the steps that he took as positive. Um, you know, for instance, rolling out new funding to uh, uh, help cities plant trees to make sure that people can have shade in extreme heat, um, making sure that cities can fund cooling centers, improving weather forecasting. But as you mentioned earlier, Amy, uh, what Biden did not mention at all was the term fossil fuels. He didn't really say anything about the need to end the fossil fuel economy. He certainly did not clear, declare a climate emergency, which is something that activists have been pushing him to do for years at this point um, and could unlock a number of powers to help him take on the crisis without congressional approval. Uh, and so I think that what we saw from Biden was you know, really awareness raising and, and some kind of uh, modest policies, but, but nothing that takes on the scale of the crisis that we're seeing right now. 
Um, he also ordered the Department of Labor to put a hazard alert for outdoor workplaces. Darna, can you talk more about this and the other measures around workplaces? Uh, could he also mandate paid water breaks and workplace protection gears like canopies of shade, fans, mist machines, etc.? The heat hazard alert that Biden issued yesterday was interesting. Um, in, in one sense, it was unprecedented. It was the the first heat hazard alert um, that will go out to employers across the nation, um, sort of reminding them of the rights that workers have on the job and the ways to best protect workers from extreme heat. Um, but I think what it really also made uh, many experts think about is the fact that his Department of Labor is still working right now to craft a heat standard uh, that would do much more to protect workers. Last year, uh, the Department of Labor said that they were working on one of these standards. Um, uh, officials have been talking about it for something like 50 years, um, and that would drastically expand, uh, you know, the ability for the government to do things like, um, you know, recommend or even mandate water breaks or shade breaks and things like this. Uh, but that process could take years to complete, and so I think that what we saw again was, you know, an attempt to use the powers that already exist. Um, but I think what experts would say is that we really need to expand those powers in a huge way. David Wallace-Wells, um, we recently interviewed a TV meteorologist in Iowa who just quit because as he reported the connection between weather, which is what so many people tune into on radio and television just to find out what the weather is. But when he made that connection between weather and climate change, he got death threats. Um, you're constantly talking about the connection between weather, climate change, and your most recent piece is about the uh, Canadian wildfires and how they connect to all this. Can you explain? Well, um, global heating produces much more intense fire conditions. Um, in Canada, it, they've, um, it's produced a totally unprecedented fire season. We've already seen uh, more than 25 million acres burn in Canada, which is two and a half times the size of the largest American wildfire season in modern history. Um, that Those fires are still burning. They are still burning out of control. And to some extent, this is actually by design. Canada is so large that firefighters can't possibly suppress those fires when they begin. Um, it's understood to be better forest management now, better fire policy to let fires burn so that forests can regenerate um, on their own. But when you're dealing with fire conditions like climate change has created, that means some unbelievably large and intense fires producing huge amounts of carbon emissions. In this case, probably more carbon this year than Canada will produce from all of its other industrial and economic activities combined. And also the smoke that we're so familiar with in the U.S., and which is not just bothering cities in Canada and the U.S., but even across the Atlantic in Europe. Um, now, I think when most people see the news, see news events about, you know, news coverage of heat waves or wildfires, I don't think it's that hard for them to make the connection to climate change these days. I think the jumps that are a little bit harder and would be a little bit more helpful for more people to make is the jump from climate change to the question of climate action, why we're not doing more and who is standing in the way. Um, so when I see, you know, when I see news coverage of extreme heat, you know, extreme heat warnings. Um, I don't worry too much that we don't put the word climate change in those headlines. I think most people understand that. 
What I think fewer people understand is why we're not doing more to protect ourselves against this really quite dramatic threat, which is coming at us, as you say, considerably faster than we anticipated even just a few years ago. And talk about what those kind of measures would look like. Again, as you say, you talk about not only wildfires across Canada, um, uh, as well as Greece, Algeria, and dozens of other places around the world. Well, I mean, the short answer is to limit all of these impacts. We need to reduce carbon emissions very rapidly. And while we have had an incredibly impressive renewable rollout over the last couple of years, all of the graphs are pointing way up. The next decade looks uh, much more promising for renewable energy than most advocates even believed was possible just a few years ago. Nevertheless, they've barely dented, if they've dented at all, the emissions that we're producing from fossil fuel generation. So we haven't actually reduced the share of global power production that comes from fossil fuels from this remarkable renewable rollout. We're just using those renewables to add to our power capacity. And that's really you know, the change that we need to make. We need to be producing so much renewable now, renewables now that we can actually draw down fossil fuels and draw them down relatively rapidly, um, rather than simply using them to supplement our consumption patterns and, and power production. And unfortunately, we, we haven't really seen a sign of that. At best, it looks like we're gonna be looking at um, sort of a, a plateau for emissions over the rest of this decade. And we know from all of the scientific warnings that's that's simply inadequate if we have any hope of meeting some of our more ambitious climate targets. In a moment, David, I want to ask you about what would be the most effective legislation in the United States to deal with climate change. But Darna Noor, I wanted to first go to your piece. Um, if you can explain what Project 2025 is and what you found in your investigation. Absolutely. So Project 2025 is essentially a group of dozens of right-wing organizations. We're talking about think tanks, publications, and the like. And it was convened by the Heritage Foundation, uh, which is, I think, in the climate world, very well known for promoting climate denial for decades um, and for even longer, uh, promoting, promoting this sort of anti-regulatory stance. Um, so these groups came together in an attempt, essentially, to advise whoever uh, the next president is if that person's a Republican. So any Republican who takes office uh, in the in next year's presidential election. Uh, this is the second time that uh, the Heritage Foundation has led the creation of a sort of transition plan aimed at a Republican president. Uh, in the early 80s, we saw the Heritage Foundation create one of these plans um, that actually went on to have a huge influence on the Reagan administration um, and was framed as a sort of way of taking on the out of control regulatory state. Um, and in this particular iteration, um, there's a lot of focus in their new transition plan on unmaking environmental regulations. Um, I, I'm happy to talk more about this, but there's a number of uh, previous Trump appointees who have written essentially uh, proposals to uh, undo the many powers of the, of the federal administration from the EPA to the Department of the Interior, uh, all in an attempt to uh, sort of lessen the federal authority uh, to regulate fossil fuels and essentially to boost uh, those polluting industries. You know, it's interesting. Polls show now that Biden and Trump, even though he was uh, indicted again yesterday, are neck and neck in the polls for president. Um, uh, you talk about the Department of the Interior part of the plan um, in this 2022 plan being written by William Perry Pendley. You note he controversially led the Bureau of Land Management under President Trump and worked to eliminate drilling regulations. Talk more specifically and name names. Absolutely. 
so as you mentioned, William Perry Pendley uh, very controversially led the Bureau of Land Management under President Trump, controversially because he was actually never confirmed by the Senate. Uh, this was the case for a number of Trump appointees. Um, and he also was known before he had a role in the Trump administration for writing this book called Sage, uh, Sagebrush Rebel that was really uh, in praise of uh, Ronald Reagan, of Ronald Reagan's anti-regulatory sort of agenda. Um, it's, it's, I think, uh, unsurprising to, to see his name in a sort of uh, proposal that's aimed at uh, you know, ending the ability for, for federal regulations to have any real uh, impact on the environment. Um, previous reporting from e, e News from Scott Waldman there found that uh, Mandy Gunasekara had written another chapter uh, focused on remaking the EPA, um, really focused on shrinking its authority both by laying off staff, uh, by cutting budgets, um, with an especially uh, big focus on sort of cutting environmental programs uh, like environmental justice programming and public outreach programming. Um, another name that, uh, that was in the, the proposal was uh, Bernard McAmey who wrote a chapter on the Department of Energy, again, sort of in an attempt to say we should shrink the authority of uh, the, the Department of Energy. Um, he previously served as an advisor to Ted Cruz, and before that, he led this far-right organization called the Texas Public Policy Institute, or Texas Public Policy Foundation, rather, uh, that really aims to undo environmental regulation and fight renewable energy at the state level. Uh, and so we're really seeing, I think, a who's who of the far-right um, in this attempt to, you know, not only sort of be in the next president's ear if they're a Republican, but also, you know, sort of recommend personnel and say, hey, here's who you should step up with. What role does billionaire Charles Koch play in this project, Arna? So the Heritage Foundation, who again are the far right uh, foundation that sort of convened this group, Project 2025, uh, has historically had ties, financial ties to the Koch brothers. Um, who are, of course, uh, billionaires who made their fortune in fossil fuels and related industries. Uh, they are all, the Heritage Foundation is also a member of the State Policy Network, um, which is a sort of coalition of these extreme right-wing groups that have uh, targeted regulation, especially climate-focused regulation, uh, in states for for many years. Um, and I think you know, I would just say, I guess it's no surprise that uh, that uh, an organization with ties to um, you know, to, to, to people who have made such a great fortune in uh, the industries that are, um, that, that must be regulated in order to take on the climate crisis are, um, you know, have, have historically been tied to a group that is trying to uh, push that agenda to the presidential level. As we begin to wrap up, I wanted to ask David Wallace-Wells to respond to um, what Dorna is describing right now. Um, and also talk about what needs exactly to be done. I mean, we're speaking today, the day after the uh, Supreme Court um, has just okayed, uh, cleared the way for construction of the contested Mountain Valley pipeline to resume, lifting a halt on a section of the project that had been issued by a lower court earlier this month after a challenge by environmental groups. Yeah, I think we're in a situation as a country now where we're pursuing what was used to what used to be called an all of the above energy strategy, and that's pretty catastrophic for our climate goals. Which means, in general, I would say at this point, the Republican Party across the country is mostly standing down in resistance to um, to renewable energy. The Project Twenty Twenty Five um, memo is really concerning. But when I look across the political landscape, I see there was basically no um, no campaigning against the IRA in the in the um, midterm elections 
anywhere. And in Texas, where there was an effort to kneecap renewable power um, a few months ago, ultimately that failed because even conservative Republicans in, in Texas understood that doing so would um, raise energy bills for consumers there. Um, nevertheless, we're also moving forward with a lot of new fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and we're sort of that, you know, that's the path we're following. We're kind of doing both at once. So in the big picture, I think what we need to do is find a way to accelerate the, the good stuff and, and draw down the bad stuff. And functionally, for me, what that means is finding a way to ease the rollout of renewable power, build more transmission lines so that we can um, expand our grid and accommodate much more renewable electricity over the next few years without at the same time giving benefits um, to new infrastructure on the dirty side. And unfortunately, to this point, most of the so-called permitting reform proposals that we've heard have been balanced in precisely that way. Um, they, they do make some accommodation or allow for some acceleration of renewable build-out, but they also allow for a lot more dirty energy construction. And we just can't have that if we um, are hoping to hit the targets that are uh, not just set by the scientific community, but the somewhat less ambitious ones that have been embraced by the Biden administration. And finally, David Wallace-Wells, um, I mean, the... Uh, phraseology of the UN uh, Secretary General Guterres talking about global boiling, taking on the fossil fuel industry, industry seems to fly in the face of what's happening with the UN Climate Summit, the one that's coming up in UAE. In January, the UAE confirmed that Sultan al-Jaber had been appointed the president of COP28. He is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, the biggest oil producer in the United Arab Emirates, the 12th largest in the world. Your final thoughts on this? Well, just as context, I think it's important for people to understand the U.S. is actually the world's largest producer of oil and the world's largest producer of gas. So when we point our finger around the world and shake our hand at other people's bad action, we should remind ourselves how poorly we're doing. But in general, um, Guterres has... Uh, has taken a really unusual turn as Secretary General. Um, he has made himself, you know, a climate forward, climate first rhetorical world leader, operating somewhat independently from the other structures of the UN, including the COP process. Um, he's made himself the rhetorical leader on climate anywhere in the world. And it actually is a kind of um, a shaming contrast to compare the language that he uses to the language that leaders like, you know, Joe Biden here, but um, leaders all around the world have used much more muted rhetoric. And I think while some of his language is a little overheated, at least for my taste, um, I do think it's quite striking how few other figures of political prominence anywhere around the globe are speaking in these urgent terms. And it's a reminder of how far um, the world is from really reckoning with the state of the climate crisis and the near future that we're now rushing headlong into. Um, we need more people feeling the urgency that the secretary general feels and giving voice to it so that you know, the everyday Americans, everyday people all around the world understand that their leaders see the existential saga we're living through in the same terms that they do and um, are at least trying to move the ball forward as opposed to letting it, you know, letting it, um, letting things stay as they are, which is not an acceptable state. David Wallace-Wells, we want to thank you for being with us. New York Times opinion writer, columnist for the New York Times Magazine, and Darna Noor, fossil fuels and climate reporter for The Guardian. We'll link to both of your recent articles at democracynow.org. Coming up, Texas Congress member Greg Kassar will be with us. He just had an eight-hour thirst strike on Tuesday on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to highlight the need for a federal workplace heat standard as his state outlaws water breaks for people who work outside.
back in 30 seconds. The Selector. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. As temperatures soar across the United States for a second month and nearly half of Americans face heat advisories, President Biden announced new steps Thursday to provide relief. I'm announcing additional steps to help states and cities deal with the consequences of extreme heat. First, I've asked Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su to issue a heat hazard alert. It clarifies that workers have a federal heat related have federal heat related protections. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out where they refuse to protect these workers in the awful heat. Second, the acting secretary of labor will work with her team to intensify enforcement, increasing inspections in high risk industries like construction and agriculture. This work builds on the national standards the Labor Department is already developing for workforce and workplace heat safety rules. This comes after Texas Congress member, former labor organizer Greg Cassad, held an eight-hour thirst strike Tuesday on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to highlight the need for a federal workplace heat standard, which includes mandatory water breaks for workers. He was joined by elected officials and advocates, including United Farm Workers legend Dolores Huerta, as well as workers like Fernando Arista, an electrician from Austin, who spoke out against a new Texas law banning water breaks. Proponents of this bill, they talk about business. They say it'll help our business and it'll help out the Texas economy. Well, we workers are part of the Texas economy. And if it'll help our businesses, it'll help our businesses at the exploitation of workers. At least 2,000 workers in the United States die every year from heat exposure. On Monday, Texas Congressmember Kassar and more than 110 Democratic lawmakers sent a letter to the Department of Labor and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, urging them to fast-track federal protections for outdoor workers in order to prevent more deaths. It cited the recent deaths of two workers in Texas, quote, in Dallas, Texas, a USPS employee of over 40 years died while on his route in 115 degree heat. In Harrison County, Texas, a 35-year-old lineman working to restore power died likely from heat exhaustion. For more, we go to Capitol Hill to speak with Congressmember Greg Kassar, Texas, whose district stretches from San Antonio to Austin. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Congressmember. We hope that you're now getting plenty of water. Uh, But talk about back home in your state, What's happening to workers who work outside? And talk about that thirst strike you went on Tuesday. Amy, thanks so much for having me on and covering such a critical topic that everyday people are talking about at home, but usually doesn't get enough attention 
here on Capitol Hill. We are experiencing a global heat wave, the hottest July in recorded history. In San Antonio, we had the hottest two weeks in our history. And during this heat wave, our governor decided to sign a law taking workers right away from them to a water break. And so we decided to fight back. We fought back in the traditional way of a letter with over 110 members of Congress and U.S. senators. But we decided to push back also with direct action in the kind of tradition of Dolores Huerta and the United Farm Workers, in the recent tradition of politicians like Wendy Davis staging a filibuster for reproductive rights or Cori Bush sleeping on the U.S. Capitol steps to prevent evictions during the pandemic. We held a thirst strike uh, where I stood on those Capitol steps in the sun for about nine hours from morning until I had to go inside and vote. But we also used that opportunity to raise the voices of workers so the president could hear them uh, and finally enact workplace protections, dignity and decency on the job, water breaks, shade, these basic rights. And if the president gets that done, he can overturn these extreme corporate right-wing leaders like Greg Abbott and protect workers, not just in Texas, but across the country. Congressmember, this isn't your first thirst strike. You did one in Austin in 2010. You were the youngest council member in Austin. In Dallas in 2015. One of those who joined you this week at your thirst strike on Capitol Hill was Jasmine Granillo, the sister of Randy Granillo, a construction worker who died from heat stroke on the job in 2015 and was denied a water break at his construction job. This is a clip from the PBS documentary Death on the Job with one of Granillo's family members describing what happened to him on the day he died. Randy started feeling sick at 10 a.m. in the morning. He told his boss that he wasn't feeling well and he was never told he could stop working. They just shoved him aside. His temperature was 110 degrees Fahrenheit. By the time he got to the hospital, his organs, his heart, his pancreas, and all of his organs. There was nothing they could do. And this is a Texas state representative, Armando Wall, speaking in 2021 in the state legislature about Randy Granillo, the construction worker in Dallas named, who died from heat stroke, whose family fought to pass, uh, protect other workers from the same fate. Randy would work from 7 a.m. members to 11 p.m., some weekends included. The day he passed, He complained to the contractor at 10 a.m. that he couldn't feel his hand. By 12 p.m., he stopped talking. By 447 members, 447 members, he passed away. Roendi died in the hospital at 7 p.m. His body temperature reached 109, 109 degrees, according to the medical examiner's report. Roendi's stomach was empty when he died. He was working 16-hour days in July without receiving water breaks or meal breaks. To honor the death of their son, Randy Granillo's parents led the fight fight at the city of Dallas to win a water break ordinance. They were committed to protecting other families from losing a child to a heat-related illness. From the Texas State House to where you are, Congressmember Greg Kassar, in the U.S. Capitol now, as you're a Congressmember from Texas, 
Can you go more into detail? I think people around the country are just shocked to hear that the Republican governor of Texas, Abbott, has signed into law um, a bill that overturns municipal requirements for water breaks in this record heat, among other overturning things that it overturns, uh, that it prevents in municipalities. It is a slap in the face. It is dangerous. It'll get people killed. But most of all, it's disrespectful to working people. And when people are astonished that Governor Abbott has signed a law taking away people's right to a water break, uh, I'm outraged, but unfortunately not surprised because this bill taking away workers' rights has been a top priority for big corporate interests in Texas for years. And that makes it a top priority for folks like Governor Abbott. And the only way we can take on that big corporate money is through organized people. And that's why I was so proud to stand on those Capitol steps all day in the sun alongside the Granillo family to deliver them a United States flag flown over the Capitol on the eight year anniversary of their brother and son's uh, death at age 25, his organs cooked by exploitation. Uh, and by disrespect of working people. But we refuse to let those workers just become a statistic. That's why we have to raise workers' voices. And I think the president calling out Governor Abbott and this law just two days after this strike should serve as an inspiration that workers organized can make a difference. The president listening is an important first step, but now he's got to do the most important second step, which is get something done. We have to declare a climate emergency, pass heat protections for all workers, and go beyond that. Give everybody the right to a union. Get everybody a living wage. Transition Texas workers from the fossil fuel industry to the renewable energy industry and save countless workers' lives in the future. Otherwise, we're all going to be paying for it. Critics have called uh, this bill in Texas, this now law, the Death Star uh, law, uh, which, of course, is a play on the Lone Star State, Texas. Um, How would what President Biden could do, how would it challenge what Abbott has done? How would it overturn this mandate that overturns municipal laws? In 2010, I led a thirst strike in Austin where we didn't drink water on the steps of Austin City Hall. And that helped beat back corporate interests and got people the access to water breaks on the job in Austin. We did the same thing in Dallas in 2015. Now that Abbott is overturning those laws, we have a chance to go over his head. The president can put in place through his own authority, this doesn't require an act of Congress, federal heat protections that guarantee everyone across the country the right to a water break, the right to come off of a scaffold, the right to stop working and take a break if you're feeling sick in the sun. And that's what we need as temperatures get worse because this summer has been bad, but we know the next one can only get worse after that. So we need to get that uh, action immediately done. You said in an earlier segment that sometimes that takes years and that's unacceptable. And that's why we need people organizing and raising their voices like they did at this thirst strike so that we could start overturning oppressive actions by right-wing governments in the South. In the same way that the Voting Rights Act signed by a Texas president because people of conscience here took on oppressive governors and governments in the South, the Voting Rights Act brought voting rights back uh, to the South. We We have to do the same thing on reproductive rights, and we have to do the same thing on workers' rights as well. We can't just give up because governors uh, are participating in the cruelty Olympics as people like Abbott 
and DeSantis try to outdo each other. Congressmember Greg Casari, want to thank you for being with us. Democrat from Texas, whose district stretches from San Antonio to Austin, hailed an eight-hour thirst strike Tuesday in the steps of the U.S. Capitol to highlight the need for a federal workplace heat standard, which includes mandatory water breaks for workers. Coming up, President Biden's designated national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. We'll speak with Emmett Till's cousin, who was with him on the night of his lynching, back in 30 seconds. I was sent back to my mother, at least what was left to me. She kept my casket open for the cold white world. singing My Name is Emmett Till. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. This week, President Biden designated a national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Emmett Till would have turned 82 on July 25th, but he was murdered at the age of 14 on August 28, 1955, dragged from his great uncle's home in Money, Mississippi by two white men for allegedly whistling at a white woman. They beat tortured and shot Emmett, tied a heavy cotton gin fan to him with barbed wire, threw his body into the Tallahatchie River. His bloated, disfigured corpse was discovered several days later. His mother, Mamie Tomobley, had his body returned to Chicago for his funeral. She insisted on an open casket so the world would see the brutality of bigotry, the ravages of racism. Jet Magazine and other black publications carried photos of Emmett's beaten, distended face in his coffin, shocking the world, galvanizing the civil rights movement to defeat Jim Crow. Three sites make up the monument to Emmett Till. The Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ on Chicago's South Side, where Emmett's funeral was held. The Tallahatchie County Second District Courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi, where Emmett's two murderers were acquitted by an all-white jury. And the Grabal Landing site along the Tallahatchie River, believed to be where Emmett Till's body was found. The memorial sign at Gravel Landing was made bulletproof to withstand the attempts to destroy it. It's been shot at and vandalized countless times. This comes amidst efforts to suppress such history from being included in the school textbooks led by Florida governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. This is President Biden speaking Tuesday. At a time when there are those who seek to ban books bury history, we're making it clear, crystal, crystal clear. While darkness and denialism can hide much, they erase nothing. They can hide, but they erase nothing. We can't just choose to learn what we want to know. We have to learn what we should know. Also speaking at the proclamation signing for the National Monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, was Emmett's cousin and best friend, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. When I sat with my family on the night of terror, when Emmett Till, our beloved Bobo, was taken from us, taken to be tortured, brutally murdered, murdered. back then, 
when I was overwhelmed with terror and fear of certain death in the darkness of a thousand midnights. In a pitch black house on what some have called dark fear road. Back then in the darkness, I could never imagine a moment like this. Standing in the light of wisdom, grace, and deliverance. That's Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. speaking between President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, the first black vice president of this country. Joining us now from Chicago, Emmett Till's cousin, his best friend, was 16 years old when he witnessed Emmett Till's abduction from his great uncle's home in Money, Mississippi, co-authored the book, A Few Days Full of Trouble, Revelations on the Journey to Justice for My Cousin and Best Friend, Emmett Till. Reverend, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, You know, as we honor this moment, again, condolences, no matter how many decades later, on the death of your cousin that has shaped so much of your life. If you can talk about what this means to you, the designation of this national monument in three parts, and you know, the, both the church where you are in Chicago, the, where the funeral was held, but also the site where it's believed his body was found at Gravel Landing uh, and the courthouse where his murderers were acquitted. Your thoughts on what this means to remember these places? Well, as you know, uh, I'm very much aware that in America, the wheels of justice grind, but they grind slow. And we appreciate and respect and honor what has been done to put it on a national level, this monument. I think about the suffering, the pain that it caused us to get to this point. So we really appreciate it. Same time we have mixed emotions and what was done should have been done. It's kind of like the anti-lynching law. It took 100 years and 200 times, but we got it done. And what do you want us to know about Emmett Till today? Carolyn Bryant just died, uh, the woman who made the first accusation about Emmett when you all went into the drugstore so many years ago. From the time that it happened, and I want the truth. I read the Look Magazine piece, and I knew that wasn't the truth at 16 years old. Felt so helpless. So I never ever get a chance to bring the truth out. Now I'm able to speak to the truth sometime and someone will believe me. It was 30 years before I was interviewed. And when I was interviewed, they said I alleged. So I feel good that the truth is out, some of the truth is out and believable. What did it mean to you to be standing there uh, at the White House um, between the president and the vice president as you remember that fateful night? Well, here I'm standing among some of the greatest people in the world. People who have a voice, people who can speak to the issues. And I felt comfortable, I felt relaxed. Uh, knowing that we were making progress. In 2000, I spoke to Mamie Till Mobley, um, your aunt, mother of Emmett Till, reflecting on the painful moment when she learned about her son's murder. When we knew that Emmett was dead, 
our first action, oh, we couldn't take time to cry. As I announced to the family what was happening, of course there were screams, people were hitting the floor, and that hysteria was setting in. And I, I remember standing announcing that we don't have time to cry now. We've got to do something. I don't know what to do, and you've got to help me come to make some decisions. That's Mamie Till Mobley. And it's quite amazing, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., that it's not just uh, an Emmett Till Memorial. It's also the memorial to the most determined mother, perhaps, on earth. I mean, Mamie Till Mobley, when she demanded that the casket be open for the funeral and the wake, for people to see her son's distended, um, brutalized head and that picture that went into Jet Magazine, um, the bravery and what this inspired, right? This was the summer before Rosa Parks sat down on the bus. She was so sickened by these photos and the horror of what had happened to Emmett. And then the 1963 March on Washington, August 28th. People may not realize that was set for August 28th because that was the day Emmett Till was lynched. Can you talk about how his death, his mother said he's going to die a hero, um, has shaped so much of the civil rights movement of today? Mamie and I both were raised in a very strong faith atmosphere. I pastored a church that started in her mother's house in 1926 now. She was well prepared. It's like she was ready for this. And at the same time, there was a little confusion there. But she was prepared to step up and do what she did because of her religious background, and you should read, and everybody should have the opportunity to, to read her reconciliation speech of 2003. The country, the leaders, the world leaders should read that, and you get a better idea how she is prepared to do what she did. Great one. Can you share with us a cherished memory you have of your cousin? He had come to Money, Mississippi to be with you, with his other cousins, with his aunt and uncle, to get out of the Chicago heat. Um, mm. What do you remember most about Emmett? And what did you call him? Well, well, <laughs> uh, when you mentioned his name, uh, I was trying to turn so you could see his face. He has, has a uh, magnetic smile. You can see it there? Yes, we can. For people yeah. who are listening, yeah. uh, the reverend is moving over because there's a large black and white photo of uh, Bobo, of Emmett Till. That's Bobo. Stuttered every day, all day of his life. He hadn't said he was the center of attraction. Now, he, he was an innate leader. He never was lost for fun. Never had a bad day in his life. And when you mention his name, you got to laugh. If you know Bobo, you got to laugh. He paid people to tell him jokes. And he lived a good, full life for a 14-year-old. And is that you on the other side of that picture? Yeah, the big guy back there, that's me. <laughs> At that time, I think uh, uh, he probably was uh, 12 and I probably was 14. Two years later, he was gone. 
Well, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., we thank you so much for being with us as you just got back from Washington for that proclamation, that announcement of the three-part national monument that honors Emmett Till and your aunt, uh, Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett's Bobo's mother. Thank you so much for being with us. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Rob Young. You can see transcripts of all of our shows and also get video and audio podcasts at democracynow.org, as well as sign up for our daily news digest um, at democracynow.org. Or you can text the word democracy now, one word, to 66866, and that'll sign you right up. Democracy Now is currently accepting applications for interns in our archive and development departments. Learn more at Democracy Now. Yeah, you're going to get Richard Wolf. Oh, I thought you were going to do it in there. No, I was asking you to do it on there. Oh, that's... Mm. Yeah, it's okay. That's a little hard to do that. It's a little warm. Mm-hmm. I was just noticing, yes, Caroline was at 101 yeah. degrees yesterday, um, and I don't quite see what that city's mm-hmm. name was, but if you go farther over to Phoenix, it was, you know, it was... It was uh, after 7 o'clock, uh, 7 something last night, and it was still 118 degrees in Phoenix. Um, That's just wild. This is. I have no idea what it's like at the equator in Africa. <laughs> um, what? I'm not able to get this. No? No. Somehow I got to read it. Mm. This one? Eric Bonkus? Yes. Okay. Okay, we played this before, but it's been a while, and Mr. Varifakis of Greece with Richard Wolf. All right, ready? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> okay. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program will be devoted in its entirety to an interview with Yanis Varoufakis, 
He is a member, even though I know many of you don't need this information, I want to give it to you anyway. He is a member of the parliament in Greece, and he is a parliamentary leader of the party that he helped found, known as the European Realistic Disobedience Front. It belongs to the larger European-wide organization, Democracy in Europe Movement 25. Uh, I have known Giannis for quite some time. We have worked together on occasion. I have admired his intellect, his writings in economics, a field that I share with him, and his leadership on many, many levels over a long period of time. Uh, I'll get into that in a moment. So I count him as a friend and a colleague and someone who deserves the respect of a world that has fewer and fewer political leaders that deserve much of it. In his own words, Yanis Varoufakis was, quote, thrust into the public scene by Europe's inane handling of an inevitable crisis. I love it in the few words he was able to get in a whole theory of how crises happen in capitalism on a regular basis and each time seemed to be handled by the bourgeoisie, if I can say that, as if it were a surprise and stunning and unique and somehow exceptional when it is none of those things. In January 2015, he was elected to Greece's parliament with the largest majority in the country, and he served as Greece's finance minister between January and early July of 2015. During those tumultuous six months, he fought against three institutions determined to oppose on the poorest of Greeks the harshest austerity in history. Those three institutions, the International Monetary Fund, the European Commission, and the European Central Bank. Yanis Varoufakis resigned from the finance ministry when he refused to sign a loan agreement that perpetuated Greece's debt deflationary cycle. A politician with principles who resigns when those are violated, even by his own closest associates who were struggling within that Syriza uh, period of Greek history. In 2016, Varoufakis co-founded the Democracy in Europe Movement 25. Two years later, in 2018, he launched its Greek electoral wing. That's that disobedience front I mentioned. And together with U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, he established the Progressive International, a global movement with 200 million affiliated members worldwide. He has constantly been speaking, writing, and politically active as a critic of the capitalist status quo. I'm enormously proud and pleased to bring you, Giannis, to our microphones and to our cameras. Thank you, Rick. I'm also very, very honored to be on your program again. Uh, and as you know, but maybe not everyone in our audience knows, uh, I have appreciated what you have been doing on the other side of the Atlantic for decades now, which is to keep the flame going, the flame of a Marxist critique of US capitalism, of global capitalism. Uh, you were amongst the very few uh, economists who continued to make the point 
of the immiseration of the American working class through a combination of wage austerity and financialization, piling up huge loans upon them to keep the American dream going before in 2008 the whole house of cars came down and the working class of America was left with absolutely nothing, destroyed dreams of uh, the American dream of uh, uh, you know, financialization that they would make it big by you know, scaling up their mortgages. Uh, your work at that front has been inspirational on this side of the pond here in Europe. So thank you. Very kind of you. Thank you, Yanis, too. Let's jump in now and give our audience a chance to hear your thinking about it. Let's start with what is very much shaking this side of the Atlantic, and maybe also your side, the so-called banking crisis that we are in, that was precipitated, even though it's been building for a while, it was precipitated by the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank in, in California, the Signature Bank in New York, perhaps also Credit Suisse in uh, Switzerland. And you have made a remark that I thought would be a good place to start. Your, your comment, at least as you are quoted, quote, let the banks burn. Tell us a little bit what you think is going on and what that quotation means. Let me preface my comments with uh, the strong conviction that this is not a new banking crisis. This is exactly the same banking crisis that we experienced in 2007, 2008. It never went away. It's not that it was fixed and now it's coming back. Uh, the crisis of Wall Street, of the smaller banks, of the shadow banking system, both in the United States and across the European Union and the United Kingdom, that crisis never went away. All that happened was that uh, sometime at the beginning of 2009, once the Obama administration had been sworn in, and the G7 leaders and central bankers gathered in London under the aegis of a certain Mr. Gordon Brown, the then Labour Prime Minister, uh, they decided essentially to print more than 30 trillion US dollars in order to refloat finance without fixing its structural problems, because these problems are impossible to fix without effectively undoing the whole model of globalization that was built since the early 1990s. Uh, so it's a bit like what they did in 2009 was a little like um, administering very large doses of cortisone uh, into a cancer patient. The tumor doesn't go away. The patient, since Perkia, seems to be doing better. Crisis has not gone away. Uh, indeed, a long time that I think that the crisis is actually worse now. Because, you know, back in 2007, 2008, uh, we discovered, did we not, once we looked at the so JP Morgan of um, Barclays Bank in Britain, Deutsche Bank and so on, uh, they were full of fraudulent subprime and derivative trades. There was predatory lending, there were shenanigans, it was just pure corruption, which of course was inflated by the policies of Greenspan and yeah, the new um, cabal that was ruling the United States and Europe since the 1970s. Now, since then, if you when you mentioned uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, you mentioned um, a number of banks, including Credit, Credit, Credit Suisse, the Swiss mega bank, which um, 
as a very checkered past, a very sordid and corrupt past. But nevertheless, they were nothing as bad as Lehman Brothers or J.P. Morgan or Barclays. Nothing as bad. If anything, they were following the rules, the rules that were set down for them by the Obama administration, by the European Central Bank, by the regulatory authorities in the United Kingdom. All that had happened was the policy of socialism for the bankers, the 30 plus trillion that was uh, minted by our central banks effectively to refloat finance, that had infected uh, the whole of the corporate world. Uh, Essentially, there was a combination of one thing. First thing was the underinvestment, massive underinvestment, which was due to the austerity that went hand in hand, the austerity for the many, that went hand in hand with the socialism for the bankers. And on the other hand, the purchase by central banks of government bonds, thus keeping their value artificially high, the banking system was encouraged to purchase these bonds. So there was this transfer of monies minted from the central bank onto the books of the private banks, but in the form of inflated public debt. This may sound very complicated to our audience. It's not really complicated. It's really very easy. Capitalism had fallen on its face. It was refusing to get up. The only policies that could have helped bring capitalism on to its legs again would be a kind of new deal, Rooseveltian New Deal, a serious investment program, a works program, a program of transferring money to the people that would actually spend it if they had it, to the poor and to the weak. Uh, that never happened because finance are never allowed the Clintons of the world and the Browns of the world and the European unions of the world to do that. So instead, they pumped huge quantities of cortisone into our banking system and our public debt system. And you know, the, Anybody who knows anything about medicine, I know very little about medicine, but anybody who knows every, anything about medicine knows that if you pump huge quantities of, of cortisone into a patient, it's not going to end well. So we have the same crisis that began in 2008, continuing today. So let me come to the uh, provocative title of my article, let the, let, the, let the Banking System Burn. Well, there are two things you can do with the banks. One is to continue to prop them up, socialism for the bankers. The second thing is to deny them the monopoly that they enjoy over our payment system and over our savings. Now, if a banker out there wants to take the risk of you know, borrowing money from you or from me in order to lend it to somebody else at a slightly higher interest rate, I'm happy for them to do it. But this is not what's going on. What is going on now? Well, now, yokes is that banks force you to keep your money with them because they own the monopoly of the payment system. With digital technologies today, there's absolutely no reason why the Fed could not give a digital wallet to everyone where they can store with 100% safety their savings and affect transactions. All they need is a PIN number to pass money from one person to another. Effectively, you would have a digital ledger that belongs to the Fed And when you make a payment, a sum of dollars will go from your little cell on that ledger to the coffee shop's Mm -hmm. ledger. And that would be it. That would be a remarkable revolution. It would cut off the middlemen, the bankers, 
it would allow us to say to bankers, well, if you fail, you fail. We don't care. You are ne- never going to be too big to fail because you are not going to have the monopoly over our payment system. Uh, the tragedy is that even the bankers understand that there is a logic to this. But of course, the reality is that they have so much political power that they will not allow the Fed or the European Central Bank to do it, even though the Fed and the European Central Bank, I have this on good authority from within, that they are experimenting with these these digital wallets. Um, They know that it will be a very efficient way of running as a public utility or payment system, but they also know that Wall Street has too much power over our governments, so much power that they are going to utilize in order to stop the Fed and the European Central Bank from doing that. Would you agree with the following sentence? We are living through the decline of the American empire and of its capitalist center. Stay with us, Giannis, and to our audience as well, stay with us after a short break. We'll be right back to hear what Giannis Varoufakis has to say in response to the question. Before we move on, I want to remind everyone that Economic Update is produced by Democracy at Work, a small donor-funded nonprofit media organization celebrating 10 years of producing critical system analysis and visions of a more equitable and democratic world through a variety of media, like the long-form lecture series I host called Global Capitalism, designed to help others understand current economic events and trends so they can explain the impact and effects capitalism creates across the globe to others. Global Capitalism is available on our website, democracyatwork.info. There you can also learn more about everything we produce, sign up for our mailing list, follow us on social media, and support the work we do. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. We are speaking with Yanis Varoufakis, member of the Greek parliament. And before the break, I had asked him what he thinks about the sentence, the American empire is declining and with it, its capitalist center. So let me turn it over to you again, Giannis. What do you think? In one sense, the United States economic machine has been faltering and declining since the mid-60s, as you know, when the United States lost its trade surplus. And the result of that was, as we know, that uh, Richard Nixon on the 15th of August 1971 blew up the Bretton system's the Bretton Wood system that the United States had created. Why? Because America was no longer capable, due to it being a deficit country, to um, maintain the global dollar-based system that it had created after 1944. So in a sense, there's been a decline. Um, Rick, back in 1970, when uh, Henry Kissinger was uh, um, not even in the State Department, he had put a question to his uh, entourage. And the question was very similar to yours. Now that we are declining as an economic power, how can, how can we maintain our hegemony? And the answer that was given to him by an, a young man back then, youngish man, Paul Volcker, you remember him, right? 
<laughs> when he was uh, acting as an advisor to Henry Kissinger at the National Security Agency uh, Council. So um, it's really very simple. We have to make sure that we maintain our hegemony by making other people pay for it, which is the model after the 1970s, which Paul Volcker also helped establish once he had moved to the Fed. Essentially, if you think about it, it's quite remarkable. The American empire is the first empire in human history that has managed to make the wealthy of the rest of the world, of the conquered, if you want, voluntarily, voluntarily to send their wealth to Wall Street and therefore to close the loop, the recycling loop, whereby the American trade deficit operates as a vacuum cleaner sucking into the American markets, the net exports of everybody else, Germany, France, and Italy, and of course, Japan, and primarily China. Uh, with uh, 70% of the profits of the Japanese, the Italians, the French, the Japanese, and the Chinese going back into real estate, into the stock exchange, uh, and into uh, the insurance businesses of the United States. So, to cut a long answer short, uh, the center of the American empire is shrinking in terms of GDP, of total income, in terms of total investment, in terms of the jobs that it can create, good quality jobs within the United States. All this is in decline. But the hegemony of the United States does not depend on that. There is a disconnect between the real economy of the United States and the power of the rentier class, the rentier American ruling class. Um, what that power hinges on, since it doesn't hinge on industry, on actual income, is on the capacity to maintain the hegemony of the dollar and the dollar payment system so as to ensure that the surplus value produced in China, in Japan, in Germany, and so on, ends up in the United States, not with the American people, of course, right? You know this better than anyone else. Not with the working class in the Midwest, but with the very, very few amongst the American regime. All right, I wanna turn next to um, your own activism. Something is going on in Europe uh, having to do with the extraordinary movement of the French people into the streets against Macron, having to do even with the uh, trade unions and the transport sector in Germany, having to do with the Greeks in response to the railway catastrophe and the role of the government. I want your opinion. Here in the United States, we're speaking of a rise of labor militancy on a scale we haven't seen for 70 years. Is something comparable going on in Europe? I have good news and I have bad news. I'll start with the good news. The good news is that, yes, in France and in Greece, in other countries as well, but primarily in these two countries, um, you know, there's a tradition of them um, to this. The French had a revolution and then a few years later, the Greeks had their revolution, um, both connected to the American revolution, but that's going a long way back. Uh, both in France and in Greece, there is clearly uh, a, a tidal switch. The tide of neoliberalism and the success of um, you know, toxic radical centrism uh, 
uh, have been reversed by the people out there. In Greece, you are right, we had a massive accident killing 57 young people. And this railway accident, it wasn't an accident. It was almost predetermined as a result of the botched privatization of our railways. Uh, that has turned the tide. And now we have a majority of the people out there who are against privatizations. And they um, are clearly expressing a view in favor of renationalization. That is a big Similarly, in France, Macron's reign has been punctured. Now he's a lame duck. He will continue as a lame duck because the demonstrators, the very brave demonstrators, seize the opportunity of railing against Macron's pension reforms. By the way, the conventional media, the systemic media, present that reform as being moderate. And it sounds moderate because what did Macron do? He pushed the age limit when you go from a wage to a pension from 62 to 64. It sounds pretty moderate. Well, it is not. Once you take into consideration the fact that the average poor Frenchman lives 10 years less than the average French male rich person. So that means that by elevating the, you deny a very substantial proportion of working class men the opportunity to get any pension at all. So this is the good news. The good news is that our peoples here in Europe, especially in Greece and France, but in other countries too, have turned the tide, which was essentially um, submerging all opposition to the neoliberal, toxic, uh, pro-oligarchic policies across Europe. Now, the bad news. The bad news is that we are nowhere near having returned to the height of 2014, 2015, when we had hundreds of thousands of millions of people in Spanish cities occupying the piazzas. Remember the Ignados? We had millions here in Greece over a period of three months. We had the Blockupy movement in Germany. Back then, the structural crisis of European capitalism was so deep. The euro itself, our currency, our single currency, was very close to capitulating, to uh, falling victim of its own hubris. Uh, and what happened was that we elected the government here in Greece, which carried the hopes of every progressive European on its back. Our government surrendered on that fateful evening of the 5th of July, 2015. Since then, Rick, our movements are just a shadow of themselves. They are picking up again, but we must not exaggerate yet the extent to which they are capable of putting an effective break, effective break, a final break on this runaway train of neoliberal inhumanity. How do you, and I need to press you to be brief here, but how do you account for how stable is the apparent European decision to support and fall in behind the United States in the war in Ukraine, in the sanctions program against the Russia and all of that. What, what is going on there? Has Europe given up being separate from the United States in the struggle with China? Is there any space for a European capitalism or is that disappearing? It's disappearing, it's very clear. 
very clear. The ruling classes here in Europe, they will give up on the dream. They had a dream. The European ruling classes had a dream of a degree of strategic of the European Union. Not have given up completely. Donald Trump started that trick when he effectively rubbished Europe's attempt to take an independent position vis-a-vis Iran. Remember, after Donald Trump won the White House. And now with the war, you know, take Macron. Macron is not gung-ho like, you know, Biden or like the British government. He doesn't want to see the Ukrainian troops take over Moscow, which is a preposterous idea. <laughs> anyway, um, he would like to see what I would like to see, which is, um, you know, a peace treaty. But he can't dare to say that. The moment Macron opens his mouth and says something like that, he's going to be removed <laughs> from the Elysee. The, you know, Le Monde, the, the bourgeois press are going to destroy him if he dares say that. So I think the answer is that with every crisis we've had in Europe over the last 20, 25 years, and the euro, our currency, has a lot to do with that, but that's a big story and I won't delve into this. With every crisis we've had, the capacity of the European Union's bourgeoisie to become, to have a voice of itself, um, is disappearing. It's disappearing very fast. In the time we have left, another enormous question. Do you think that China is the emerging global hegemon, or do you think that some sort of multipolar, um, different kind of global economic organization is emerging? It's very, very difficult to tell, but you know what I think is really important regarding your question? Do you know who I think is the greatest impediment to China becoming a global hegemon? It's a rhetorical question, I'll answer it. It's Chinese capitalists. Chinese capitalists do not want the dollar to be dethroned uh, as the exorbitant privileged currency. Why? Because all their savings and investments are in, the, in, in dollars. And the demand for goods their factories produce in China, in Shanghai, in Shenzhen, Guangzhou, that demand is due to the American trade deficit, which sucks into the United States those products. And that American trade deficit will not be able to be financed if the renminbi, the one, the Chinese currency, were to overtake the dollar. So there is a clash within the Communist Party of China between those representing labor and those representing capital. We have a massive class war within the Chinese Communist Party. And I find this absolutely fascinating because in the end, China is the only country I know, substantial country, large economy, where the working class um, is actually fighting an effective class war, even though it has to do this within the halls of the Chinese Communist Party against the representatives within the Chinese Communist Party of the bourgeoisie. All right, Yanis, we've come unfortunately to the end of our um, half hour here. I want to thank you very much for your answers. I know it's much for us all to digest and think about, but I hope that we will be able to call you again and continue our transatlantic uh, collaboration and dialogue. Thank you very, very much again. My extreme pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. To my audience, as usual, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. <laughs>
all of that's changed with uh, cash mm. technology moving into Beijing, everyone. That's going to change the whole nine yards. Yeah. So, did you uh, find Greg Braden? Which one? The short one, the half hour one. Well, you're the one that told me you had it. Yeah. Yeah. But I have Teresa Ballard. I could play that. That's only nine minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. It's going to take me a while to go find it in the other room. Well, that's not good. No. I have a roomy six minutes. Well, uh, that's not going to be any good either. Yeah. Did you find it? This is um, the one with Regina Meredith, Linda Bachman. Interplanetary souls. How long? Uh, we only got a half hour. Twenty-five minutes. All right, let's do that. Okay. Tell everybody what this is. Inter- Earth-based interplanetary and the angelic realm of souls. This is with Regina Meredith and who? Linda Bachman. Okay, let's see what this has to say. souls come from so many different types of cultures that some are not exactly mother god and apple pie i always think about the client i have who comes from a place where they don't grow up they are childlike in the healthiest way permanently interplanetary souls often have trouble with relationships because they may come from a place where there is no such thing the soul that comes to my mind is ruth bader ginsburg oh interesting so that's the way more experienced souls function. That speaks to why we're seeing more and more IPs on the autistic spectrum, because the Manu, who are very, very, very wise, they're experimenting. Approximately 5% of the human population are either Earth-based, interplanetary, or angelic realm. But there are 95% of the others that live on Earth. Who are they? Dr. Linda Backman was a practicing psychologist when she began noticing clients speak of past lives. Curious, she began studying with Michael Newton, whom she became a co-teacher with in the practice of past life regression. As time went on, she noticed something else. Some of those past lives were not on Earth. She details this discovery and its implications in her book, Souls on Earth. Linda, welcome. It's the first time you've been with me on Open Minds. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I've 
we've had other dealings with each other and got to know each other a bit and had some absolutely fascinating discussions. Let's talk about the notion that, um, let's talk about the three types. We've mentioned interplanetary. So speak a little bit more about earth-based souls, which you are, you and your husband are earth-based souls. Ancient, been around forever from previous conversations, right? Yeah, so to to define an earth-based soul, and I always say to people, um, be careful about that term because people think I'm saying earthbound and that connotes something else. That yes. sometimes connotes supposedly a, a stuck soul, which would be a whole nother right. conversation. Earth-based soul simply means a soul that came from somewhere else, probably tens of thousands of years ago, came to earth and then stayed. And I don't mean stayed and had one life, but stayed and continued to incarnate here almost, underscore almost, exclusively. That's an earth-based mm-hmm. soul. An interplanetary soul is basically not designed to come to Earth. But interplanetary souls come to Earth for one, you know, I can almost make this totally black and white, one reason, and that's to bring their wisdom, their advanced perspective to Earth because we need it, because humanity needs it. Then lastly, and this is not the kind of in-depth discussion we're having, but um Angelic souls are the third type, and those are souls that specifically come from the angelic realm that serves the divine or higher frequency that seeks to guide Earth, basically. And as we've talked before, this is through a type of loving kindness that is just really almost an, it's endemic to who they are. Yes, they, they, they are love and compassion souls. And yet what's tricky, and this is where it's hard to tweak apart, is that we have a soul energy or we have a soul archetype, all of us, mm-hmm. and we have a personality archetype. Two different things. So, <laughs> yes. And so if, if I come upon an angelic soul, they may be leading with their love and kindness soul archetype, or they may be leading with their personality archetype, which to some extent overshadows um, their love and compassion. Well, and it seems like they would be uber sensitive. So to be thrown off. And have your personality affected by being so deeply wounded and traumatized by walking around the surface of Earth. It seems like they'd be particularly vulnerable to that. They are, yes, is the simple answer. They are very vulnerable to human behavior, as we all well know, that is not loving kindness and and compassion. In fact, it's often anything but that. Yeah, and so they're going to have a unique set of issues, and that's going to they're going to come through in the physical as well. And so we're going to talk about that. So let's talk about first of all, since they're the angel, there are fewer numbers, as I understand, of the angelic realm incarnate as they or are they just newer to the process than IPs and Earth base. My understanding about numbers is that approximately five percent of the human population are either earth-based, interplanetary, or angelic realm. And then, and I've asked clients this time and time again, so I'm looking for where's the overlap in the information that I receive. Um, So 5% of the human population are what we might call experienced souls, EB, IP, and AR, if we can Mm -hmm. put it that way. Um, Split that in half. Two and a half percent of that five are Mm earth-based. The other two and a half percent has to be split in half. Again, one and a quarter IP, one and a quarter angelic realm, approximately. But there are 95% of the others that live on Earth. Who are they? 
They are souls of a, about, I, I like to put it on a scale to make it simple. So a 10 point scale, they are souls at a level of evolution, probably probably between a four and a six. Okay. Of and advancement. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. Oh, it's all learning. It's we, like you're all, in kindergarten, then you're in second grade. That's right. And then you graduate, you, you get your postgraduate degree it's, down the road. Exactly. It's just a lot of work and a lot of experience. There is no hierarchy in that. That's it's correct. just about learning. Um, and I, I do want to say, because you touched on it earlier and it's important to note, um, nobody, well, except for maybe someone who's been in severe trauma, we're not earthbound as souls. We can move on to other dimensions. I mean, we can move on to other realms. We're, we're between incarnations. We don't have to make the decision to come back here. We can go elsewhere. So we're not stuck per se, right? Complicated answer. Um First of all, I want to be sure people understand that when we're in body, you know, whether it's Regina or Linda, we have a slice of our soul that causes you have a slice of your soul that causes you to be alive and, and I am the same. Um, the remainder of our soul is our higher self. Mm-hmm. So our higher self is our, is our, you could call it our divine self. Um, when we finish an incarnation and we get ready to consider incarnating again, we have a conference with our guides. And then we decide what's going to happen next. If you're an earth-based soul, you're more than likely going to come back to earth. Mm-hmm. If you're an IP soul, maybe not. It's so funny, I want to say it's up for grabs. It's up for grabs. Well, yeah. it makes sense. I mean, it, it, depending on the degree of difficulty in being here in a body, you might say I need to take a break for a while, go to something a little more comfortable, a little less challenging, and then, then I'll come. I'll head on back. It could be that kind of thing too, just a rest Yes, and I think the tricky part is even in you and me having this conversation, we only have our human brain to utilize. Yeah. So I think we can easily, um, you might say anthropomorphize to use mm-hmm. a big, long, fancy word. We, we, we humanize that perspective oftentimes for souls that are like, let's just say a seven and above. Mm-hmm. When we go back, when we finish a life, I can give a recent example that I know a little bit about in, in a moment. But um, when we go back, then the needs of humanity mm-hmm. and the needs of, uh, I mean, we're on earth. So the needs of humanity are huge. They're huge. And, and a soul will generally re-up if that has been their mission by design. I do get that. I hear, But it's interesting because so many people, that I talked to. Now, this audience is different. You're going to be talking to a lot of IP souls in this audience, a lot of EBs, a lot of angelic types, because they're gathering here and attracted to this message for a reason. Right. So we already know that it's a higher percentage of that. But even among these lovely beings, I hear so many people say, I'm done. I am never coming back. Mm -hmm. Now, I get this is personality speaking, but when it gets to super challenging times like this, Historically, what have you noticed in some of your clients? Well, I hear that a lot myself. (laughs) It's like, I'm never coming back. Or what I hear so often is, I just know this is my last lifetime. I hear that all the time. And I think, probably not. Yes. (laughs) And and the comment I so often make, along with probably not, (laughs) because I totally agree with that. (laughs) Um, The other comment I often make is that people don't stop and think about or understand that their soul is working in the higher realm exactly. right now. 
So we think, oh, well, I'm done. I'm going to go back to wherever I came from and I'm going to eat pizza and drink beer all afternoon or whatever. It doesn't work that way. No, it does yeah. not work that way. But just wanted to put it out there. No one's trapped, but uh, the, but be patient because your other your other um, more elevated half understands it's okay. You're okay. You're just not happy with what you're dealing with on the ground right now. And uh, yes, you have a choice if you really wanted to as a soul. Right, and you know, to go elsewhere. The soul that comes to my mind as we're as we're talking, um, and and I actually know this is an Earth-based soul, is the soul of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, interesting. So she's a great example. She is not an IP soul to the best of my understanding. But um, think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how she fought through illness and did not retire, didn't leave the Supreme Court, and basically died because her body just gave up on her. So that's the way more experienced souls function. She's yes. a perfect example of that. And if she were an IP, I don't know that it would be dramatically different. Yeah, that perfect example. Thank you. Um, purpose matters. Purpose and dedication to what's happening with the human species and our evolution and development. All of us, wherever we're from, right. is of tantamount importance. So now let's get into some of the challenges that you notice because this has, there's a reason people watching this are watching right now. Um, let's first talk about uh, earth-based souls and how they deal with incarnating here because they, they've been here a lot. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. are there any particular challenges in general for earth-based souls? Well, yes. Um, that's easy for me to answer because I'm an earth-based <laughs> soul. So earth-based souls that and it's always easy, I always hate to pigeonhole this with numbers, but earth-based souls that are sevens and above or eights and above um, will usually be very sensitive to to energy, whether that's natural disaster, whether it's a huge crowd of people with a lot of unhealthy energy. And they may have difficulty, as do I at times, um, earth-based souls sometimes have to be somewhat cautious about diet. Um it's still very different. I know we'll talk about IPs in a moment, but um, so advanced earth-based souls don't just live day in and day out with um, no challenges, no what we might call mind, body, spirit issues. Um, it still doesn't look like an IP soul. I mean, I know for myself um, when something's going on on the planet, um, I will be very affected. I'll either have more anxiety during the day than I normally would have. Mm -hmm. I'll have a more challenging night of sleep than I might. Mm -hmm. So that does exist. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about IP souls now, which as we already said, are a mixed bag. They're the cantina band. They're from everywhere. Yes, and that's what makes them so unique, unique in terms of gifts. So, you know, I know we're not talking about gifts, but the gifts of IP souls are broad. Um, and and so that's from no. Please talk about the gifts. We don't just have to speak of challenges. Well, the the yeah. gifts, of course, are important. So the gifts are anything from music to art to politics to um, organic gardening to. Um, I want people to think about IP souls' gifts as not necessarily what they might label as extraordinary. Except they might be an extraordinary parent. They might be an extraordinary neighbor, mm-hmm. um, whatever. So it's always important because I find humans, it's like, well, what have I accomplished with my life? 
Well, if you've been a wonderful neighbor or, um, you know, you, you ran the best, best trash disposal service in your community. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Absolutely. Let's go now to IP souls and some of the challenges they have. We are, we just talked about the fact that they bring uh, a certain amount of wisdom and uh, perhaps talent to the table that can be used, utilized on earth in a variety of ways. Well, you know, when you ask that, Regina, it, it, it causes me to, I like to kind of sit here and think about two hats that I wear. And so obviously I wear a hat as a psychologist and you know, used to be conventional, but I, I'm trained in abnormal psychology and all of that. And then I wear this spiritual hat where I understand people and, and souls. So I'm thinking about a particular client. This is a man, when I first met him, I think in his 20s, um, conventionally and what we would call fancy word again, psychopathologically, meaning abnormal psychology, he probably uh, would have been uh, labeled um, on the borderline of schizophrenia, mm-hmm. on the borderline of something called schizoid, which is related to schizophrenia, because um, his difficulty being out in public. Um, so I had to figure out to sort of make this a little bit shorter. I had to figure out when I first met him, um, okay, where where does he fit? And you know, flipping back and forth with my hats. Mm-hmm. Um, Way too articulate, way too um, worldly knowledgeable, didn't have any what I would call formal schizophrenic characteristics. IP soul, hard to go out in public, very, very wise, reads three or four digital newspapers a day, not schizophrenic. Um, But he wanted to become educated. He wanted either to become an attorney or get an advanced degree, he already had an undergraduate degree, very tricky for him to be out in the world. So he's an example of an IP soul. He's one type of example that is uh, struggles with energy. Mm-hmm. Um, physiologically, which I'll speak to in a second, but he doesn't struggle a lot with actual physical anomalies or, or issues or problems. Um, but energy is, and, and people's energy is really hard for him. So that's one okay. example. Um, another example, though, would be many clients that I have that are IPs where their diet is very, very narrow because there's almost nothing they can eat that doesn't upset their whole, you know, GI system. Mm-hmm. Um, would that be one of the most common traits? For IPs in terms of very obvious challenges once you peel back the layers and in a regression or chatting with them? I, I, when you ask that, it's like, okay, you know, trying to make it simple and, 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 and really give you an, an answer. I would say the traits would be either physiological, like allergies, mm-hmm. but serious allergies. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's couple that, try to make it simple, with okay. autoimmune disorders. Okay, okay. yeah. And then the other basically would be uh, the autistic spectrum, the entire broad-based um, autistic spectrum. Often those are IP souls. So that's not, I mean, you could say the autistic spectrum is physiological, but it's really more neurological. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Susie Miller, do you know Susie Miller? Okay. I do. And I'm going to be bringing her back here. We haven't met in a few years, uh, but as she continues to do her work, 
we were talking uh, privately the other day and she said, I didn't talk about that much in the early days, but most of my clients, they're not from here. Mm -hmm. Most of these people, these kids aren't from here. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the fact that we're seeing an increase now in IP incarnations. And this is through a lot of different people's work. I interview a lot of people. This is picking up. And I believe it's for a good reason. Mm -hmm. We need the help right now. And as these souls mature and bring with them some specific knowledge, technological wisdom, love, it's going to start over time um, inculcating that into society and creating our next evolution as humans. But a lot of them appear to be autistic and more and more people that are born are going to appear to be autistic. This is a big deal. Mm -hmm. This is a big problem. Mm -hmm. So. How are we going to begin approaching this? And that's partly why I wanted to talk to you on the show today. For parents of people with autistic kids to start really, let's look at, let's frame this in a new way. What is the genius that resides within? And we know we're talking Asperger's to lower functioning, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. almost dis- disabled autism, a different thing. Let's talk about this. What are we going to do? So if we can, let's first put this in maybe a slightly broader frame, if you will. Broader frame, as I understand it, and this is coming almost faster and more furiously through my clients. um, There is a guiding force that I have been taught to call the Manu. This is a, uh, a group soul of advanced, advanced, advanced souls that have never been incarnate on earth that are charged with doing what they can to guide humanity. And so again, these are IPs. I mean, they've been around. I can't even, if you said how old, you know, how old are they? We won't go there because time is irrelevant. Exactly. Exactly. So they, the Manu, um, people can use any term they want. They call it the source, call it what they want to call it. They are constantly, you might say, brainstorming, what can we do to help Earth? And so that speaks to, the reason I'm saying that is that speaks to why we're seeing more. We're only talking about one area of challenge for IP souls. But that speaks to why we're seeing more and more IPs on the autistic spectrum. Because the Manu doesn't know how to solve humanity's problems. The the Manu, who are very, very, very wise, they're experimenting. And so they're bringing more, one means of trying to help Earth, they're bringing more IP souls to Earth. Recruiting more IP souls. Mm-hmm. And I might just add in, um, because I have some awareness through clients and through intuitive information, that the higher realm is working on um uh, the way I hear it is they're called task forces. The higher realm, which means a group of the the higher selves of many souls, are coming together to work on, um, I'll call it guidance, because the higher realm doesn't come down here. You can make changes down here. I can make changes down here, but our souls can only guide. The higher realm is focused on uh, climate change and democracy okay. right now. And because that's so crucial. So we think about climate change and then we think about IPs and IPs struggle with inhalants, toxins in the in the air. If we don't deal with climate change, 
then how do we aid these advanced souls that are coming in that might be IPs that are so sensitive to toxins in the air? Now, when we talk about climate change, because it's so loaded with politics and carbon tax credits and um, extraterrestrial souls that would show up from other planets and other places, the one thing they, for, historically, for decade after decade before the word climate change ever happened, showed was you can't keep doing this stuff to your planet. Little grays were being were showing this to people, to tall whites, to every to Venusians. They all came with the same message: stop pooping on your planet. And so you're saying now some of these souls coming in are going to see to it that we stop these practices. That's their mission. Uh, good for you. Good for good for everyone that is working toward. Allowing the beautiful earth to be her healthy self. Yes, and it's a monumental task. I mean, I've heard many times that earth, humanity, is an experiment to see if we as humans, that's why I focus on souls in body. Yes, I focus on what are our higher selves doing as well, but that it's you and me and everybody else out there that can make change. Yes. No one else creates change. No, and there are no ETs coming to save us. We are them. That's right. <laughs> that is correct. That we're, is already, correct. we're all already here to save us. Yes. yes. <laughs> Linda, we're out of time. So any final thought before we go? Because we have so much more that we can discuss in a future um, interview. I, I guess I would just say, Regina, that um, for for all of us, myself included, if we come upon someone, obviously in human life, that seems different, that seems what we might call unusual, think again and consider who who is this person, what is this soul about that's in body, and why are they here? Because we're always here with purpose, and so that we don't judge and. Uh, inappropriately classify people we come into contact with. Look for your purpose and where you find your purpose, you're looking at your passions. What are you passionate about? That leads us to our purpose. Here, here. On that note, until next time, thank you so much, Linda. Thank I you know people so much. have gotten a lot out of this interview. So, To learn more about Linda's work and her book, Souls on Earth, you can go to major booksellers or find her through her website, ravenheartcenter.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. doing the uncommon. I mean, it is literally the Netflix of spirituality. We got a few little minutes here, and Rainbird, I see you're there. What do you think? Mm. <laughs> How's this talking stick to you? Oh, Quetzalcoatl's at the top of the line here. <laughs> All <laughs> right. So I'll take that talking stick with Quetzalcoatl on top of the line. 
Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, it was good this evening, and there's a lot going on, and I'm glad we're all here together doing this. I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it again tomorrow. You mean this afternoon? Oh, yeah, this afternoon. Oh, and today's an amazing day. It's a 77777. Oh. In the Mayan calendar. And they just add up. It's cone 177, and then it's got all these other sevens in the date. So we're just, we're cruising. All right. Let's keep cruising. Robert, what you got? (laughs) Thank you, Rayburn. Thank you. We're cruising. This is roomy at six minutes. Uh, well, you better. It's pretty long. But mm. six minutes, we'll scoot in here a little extra moment. Okay. It's called what? The Eternal Ecstasy. Here we go. love 
if I were offered a kingdom and the world's riches were placed at my feet, I would bow with my face low and say, this does not compare to his love. your wine, my life is the cup. Without your wine, what use is this cup? I once had a thousand desires. But in my one desire to know you, all else melted away. The pure essence of your being has taken over my heart and soul. Now there is no second or third only the sound of your sweet cry. Through your grace, I have found a treasure within myself. I have found the truth of the unseen world. I have come upon the eternal ecstasy. I have gone beyond the ravages of time. I have become one with you. Now, my heart sings. I am the soul of the world. From my first breath, I have longed for him. This longing has become my life. This longing has seen me grow old. But one mention of Shamsita Breeze and all my youth comes back to me. Rumi for a while, Rama, mm. bringing it all back. Mm-hmm. Well, until we meet again this afternoon, everyone. Uh, yes, until our youth comes back. <laughs> now would be good. All right.
Much aloha and uh, see you in your dreams and on that bridge. Namaste, everyone. Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ki. 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs>